Welcome back, everyone, to the State of the Arc podcast. My name is Mike. Uh, This is Kaysen, and we are joined today for our final episode of our Final Fantasy 16 analysis by three other great YouTube channels you've probably heard of. We've got Ryan from the Night Sky Prince here with us, Clark, Schrodinger's baby seal, and of course, Wade, Prof Noctis, uh, also here with us. I'd like to pass the time over to each of you real quick. Um, Ryan, people pretty much know who you are, so uh, I'm not too worried about that. But for the other two, this is kind of our first time uh, having you guys on for a discussion like this. So tell us a little bit about your channels, uh, what you do, and uh, why you love Final Fantasy so much. <laughs> I'll start with Clark, I guess. Well, I'm uh, I'm Clark, and uh, I, my YouTube channel, Stranger's Baby Seal, is a hilarious quantum physics joke. You'll just have to take my word for it. Um, I mainly do uh, deep analysis. I, I'm sort of, uh, you know, not to be a cliche, but seven-focused. Uh, so I've been, you know, covering uh, Remake and Rebirth extensively. And you know all of the uh, all of the side hustles that uh, Seven does too. You know the compilation, it's quite a few crisis, etc. <laughs> yeah, I mean I was even doing first soldier streams. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, can't uh, anymore though. <laughs> can't anymore. Can't anymore. Um, waiting for the second soldier. Um, but I uh, I have a background in mythology and religion, uh, much like our other guests. And so I generally bring that level of granular analysis uh, to um, my breakdowns of everything Final Fantasy. I'm certainly, even though my content is generally focused around Seven, um, and I have sort of an encyclopedic knowledge, um, heavily push Shinra Archaeology Department, who uh, does uh, real fresh translations of um, of interviews as obscure as you can imagine, stuff nobody else has. Uh, so definitely check out their site. Uh, also, um, you know, I have played uh, every Final Fantasy pretty extensively, and I am kind of uh, shifting into uh, a more general uh, content and, and actually moving into FGC stuff, although I don't, I don't know how much analysis I'll bring to to Devil Jin, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be smashing fools with him. Uh, mm. So yeah, that's that's generally what I do, and it's going to be a real big uh, next five months for mm. you know my community and channel. So please certainly subscribe. Uh, real real quick, uh, I see a lot of people in chat saying that Mike's audio is a lot louder than everyone else. I can fix that. It said uh, someone said Mike loud, everyone else too quiet. I can fix that. Hold on, fellas. I've also scoot. I scooted back a little bit from, from my mic. I was probably just up on it a little too, uh, hot. How does that sound? Keep an eye on it. Let me let me know if they think it's better now. Okay. okay. Uh, hit us up, Wade. Tell us about yourself. Sure. Uh, so my name's Wade. I am uh, relatively new and uh, kind of surprised to be in, in a group like this um, because um, I, um, I I've loved Final Fantasy for years, but I guess uh, where where my YouTube channel, my Twitter, all of that, uh, my Twitch stream, all that stuff comes from 
is because I did a dissertation on Final Fantasy 15 um, and how to use that in education. And um, so I've, I've spent four years playing uh, Final Fantasy 15. So I'm no stranger to Final Fantasies that other people tend to revile. And, uh, <laughs> I, I have a tendency to love those. So. Um, so I teach a class at the University of Alabama called Judeo-Christian Kingship through Final Fantasy 15. Um, it is a great, fun class. The students play the game. Um, I live stream it and all that kind of stuff. And during COVID, actually, I had to go online. And that's when my Twitch channel started. And uh, mm. ever since then, I've, I've kind of uh, kept doing that. So uh, my love for Final Fantasy began really with Final Fantasy IV on the Super Nintendo. I guess Final Fantasy II for me um, in the U.S. And um, yeah, I've been been a fan um, all, all ever since. I guess um, the things that I love about Final Fantasy has always been the story, and um, we, we'll definitely get into that. I guess so. mm -hmm, for sure. Um, real quick before I move on to Ryan. Uh, the two of you have a background in theology here. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Why did you decide to pursue that course? We'll go to Clark first. Um, you know, I really did um, have a fascination in, uh, in, in uh, Jewish mysticism and Gnosticism Ooh, because nice. of Xenogears and Final Fantasy VII. Uh, those two games did actually push me into... Um, you know, a, a sort of uh, outsider's fascination. And then um, once that became scholastic and scholarly, then, uh, you know, it, um, uh, you know, I did the thing where I uh, ruined my interest in those uh, with overexposure. <laughs> yep. Yeah, Happens to the best of us. Mm -hmm. How about you, Wade? Why did you yeah. pursue theology? So for me, I grew up in Alabama and I'm still in Alabama and it is, <laughs> you know, the buckle of the Bible belt, uh, as we say. And so I, um, I, I grew up in uh, churches and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, but I was a gamer before I was a, a uh, religious person. So I always say that. Um, I knew Mario before I knew Jesus, and so, <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, th that kind of started everything for me. So when I played things like Xenogears and all that stuff, I was kind of reckoning with a critique of religion and, as well as a personal religion, and so I ended up getting three degrees in it to try to reckon with all of that, and here I am mm. today. Hey, post, how, did, how did that go? How do you feel yeah, po post coming reckoning. out of post-reckoning? Uh, it depends on who you talk to. I consider myself <laughs> religious, but some of my peers are like, whoa, whoa. Uh, especially my students. They're like, we're going to pray for you. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, your religion <laughs> I, I no longer matches the yeah, orthodoxy. Right. I got you. Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways. Both Mario and Jesus are most commonly depicted as Italian. <laughs> right? <laughs> most you know, commonly. That's the key word. There, most yeah. commonly. Ben Starr has been doing voiceovers for everybody, including Mario. Maybe, maybe he can do Jesus. Yeah, he probably Ooh, can. I would listen. That's, right? that's his next big role. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, hit us up, man. Give us the rundown. All oh, right. Well, um, I'm Ryan, also known as the Night Sky Prince. I have been making Final Fantasy content since 2017. Uh, I started making content on Final Fantasy 15, kind of covering the post-release of FF15. Some people uh, have some Mandela effect going on and think that they watched me leading up to 15. I actually started shortly after, <laughs> like just a couple of months after. Uh, it's always interesting to, to hear that from people. Um, but yeah, um, I've always been enthusiastic um, about Final Fantasy. Um, 
and uh, it's it's motivated me in a lot of ways too. I'm very thankful for it, um, for kind of shaping um, who I am, uh, shaping my taste in video games, um, really creating this interest in story-driven games, right? Because I think whenever I tell people I'm a content creator for a living, uh, their minds immediately go to Fortnite or Minecraft sure, or, yeah. <laughs> or something like that, right? Um, and to hear that there is this entire world of story-driven games and um, some of these games are as good as some of the best films that you'll ever watch is pretty incredible. And, you know, I've always wanted more people to know about that. And I think that Final Fantasy has some really outstanding stories in it that, uh, that I think more people should have exposure to. Thank you very much. You're here. Totally agree. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, here's the plan for today's stream, everybody. Um, we've already finished Final Fantasy 16. Everybody here has. Um, we covered the ending on the podcast last week in the last episode. So essentially, um, today we're going to be talking just not, we're not going to be really doing any summary. We're going to be talking about themes. We're going to be talking about execution. We're going to be talking about just kind of the overall experience where we're sitting on it now. Um, I, I tried my best after last week because uh, people know that Case and I weren't necessarily so hot on the game by the end of it, to, to fill out a panel here of people who would have lots of different feelings and perspectives on this, uh, tried to make it as diverse as possible because uh, as, as, as hard as I tried to really carefully navigate uh, articulating my feelings last week, uh, to do it in a cordial way, to do it in an inviting way, in a warm way, like, hey guys, you know, like, I wasn't so great yeah. on it, come on, like, just tell me what you think. Uh, I got suggested to uh, be into, <laughs> yeah, I needed intellectual guidance. So mm -hmm. I've invited, oh, I've invited some intellectual guidance this week. Uh, <laughs> you, you heard uh, Clark at the beginning joking a little bit about getting ready to throw down and do some debate um, I actually really wanted to do this in particular with content creators who have a lot of different opinions from ours to show two things. One, um, the toxic discourse surrounding Final Fantasy is totally not necessary. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, and there can be, I think, a lot of room uh, to, one, agree to disagree, which will probably happen on, on this podcast, but two... Um, kind of get through to each other, to have like a real actual productive discourse. So um, that is something I really wanted to demonstrate with this. So that's option number one. Option number two, I think we're gonna agree on a lot more than people are gonna think we're gonna agree on. They're, they're thinking we're coming from these total opposite places. And uh, it, it's really not the case. So um, anyway, I am really excited to have this conversation. I hope that the audience will appreciate um, everybody making the time and I definitely appreciate you guys making the time and, and coming in to do this. So why don't we start here? Um, everybody already knows Case and I's feelings. We, we did that last week, but why don't we go around and have everyone give us sort of their maybe paragraph or two uh, overall sentiment or feeling on the game as a whole. How, how do you feel coming out on the other side 
Uh, we'll start with Ryan because you were especially, I think, very, very high riding in. So on the back end of that, where are you at? Okay. Well, I titled my review on the game Excellence Meets Imperfection. Mm-hmm. And I think that in a lot of ways sums it up. There were a lot of moments in Final Fantasy 16 that were incredibly high moments. And am I allowed to go into spoilers right yes. now? Yes, this is, about- okay, I yeah. should have said that. This yeah. is a full spoiler, go for it completely. Yeah, I, need to, like, I think I need to raise the level on Kaysen real quick. Let me do that. Okay, he needs yeah. to be louder. Oh, just me? Yeah, I got you. Don't worry. Go ahead. Um, there are moments, like when you're fighting Titan or Bahamut, that are just out of this world. And I'm just like, this That's is true. the, the, the cool. True. Yeah, I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. Uh, moments that I would describe, you know, you know, spectacle-wise as some of the peak of, like, Final Fantasy, where I'm looking at it and holding my controller and... You know, <laughs> my next is going back and my pupils are dilating and uh, it's incredible. And then after that, I would have to go back and I'd be doing these very repetitive dry quests. And some of those quests had some, you know, really interesting stories behind them. But unfortunately, you know, the way that you engaged with that was just so, um, you know, to be frank, poor at times and and really uninteresting. And so... You know, the whole time I'm playing this game, I'm going back and forth between, you know, I really like this. And then I'm like, oh, my God, you know, how much longer can this drag on? And so I feel like I, I, the whole experience with the game was just really going between um, these polar opposite feelings. And I just wish that, uh, I mean, you know, game development is really complicated if maybe making the game shorter would have resolved some of these issues so that they could have, you know, really honed in on the parts of the game that felt dry, or if they would have, um, you know, created maybe some systems that would have allowed for questing to be more interesting than what it was, right? Because it's really hard to do when um, the foundation of, like, your gameplay system is, is literally just, well, all you really have is fighting basically right so it's really hard to um especially for a role-playing game to uh make quests that are so insanely interesting every single time uh from a game from a game design perspective when um your sort of kit as a game designer is basically been limited to basically a handful of interactions so um there was a lot that i liked about final fantasy 16 um but also um, I do have to be critical of it in quite a number of areas that I just think um, that just simply could have been better, uh, in my opinion. Okay. Yeah. Uh, why don't we move to Clark next? Um, well, uh, I, I somewhat agree. Uh, I think that um, most of... If, if, if I were to write down uh, all of my thoughts on on the game i would talk more about where it failed than it succeeded that doesn't necessarily mean that i think that the game failed i think the game was i I, this this may be more of a critique of the state of gaming but i do think it is one of the best and most comprehensive stories told in a game in the last couple of years (laughs) um oh i see uh, 
but uh that being said i um you know i i think that the execution of the game uh uh really did not serve all of the best elements of its story of its lore of its world building um you know the themes that were built up in this way on paper like this if if final fantasy 16 were a novel um i think it would have encapsulated the theme of final fantasy like the core of final fantasy as a motif better than any of the other final fantasy stories however it worked so hard against the actual execution of the game for a game for instance about like the power of friendship and i recognize that all final fantasies are about you know the you know uh uh rejection of isolation and and you know the um you know the the whole kill god motif um and depending on your friends i mean for the for the game to on a story level execute that so wonderfully on the only final fantasy where you don't have party members just felt like such a misstep and so much of of the way that the game is designed um feels like it just set itself to be the riskiest final fantasy and ends up being the safest one instead mm. and um you know i i went into this thinking so excited that you know we were oh, this is this is the heart of final fantasy for me i watched wade's video and the heart of final fantasy is about taking these risks and setting these precedents but instead it it ended up really playing it very safe with almost every system down to rpg elements uh down to the action combat i think that um you know in in a lot of ways it moved backwards but uh where i ultimately left the game is that you know and i replayed the ending right before this podcast i do feel like it did stick the landing in the end for me and and i'll get into that later when we we get more into it but um that's kind of my paragraph like five okay. paragraphs on it. <laughs> All good. All right. Wade, hit us up. What is, what is your feeling on the game? I started out with a 10 for the game. I, like, I, I came in hot, right? And um, the, the beginning section particularly, that prologue um, moving into the Benedicta stuff, um, that stuff was, was just prime, you know? Um, somewhere in the middle, um, I'll use this intentionally, it became kind of mid and I, I think she <laughs> had a lot to do with that, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, some of her, her uh, main story quests. But I will say that um, every time I started to get a little iffy on the game, uh, it would do something to draw me back out. Um, usually an icon battle or sometimes, um, you know, bringing in a character that I really felt for, like Gav right? Gav's growth and development. I really loved him as a sidekick. Would I have loved him as an actual party member? Absolutely. <laughs> but um, he, uh, he, he added some of that banter that I really liked um, and some of that levity. Um, by the ending, I'm kind of like Clark here. The, they stuck the landing so firmly for me um, with, with the ending that um, it, it, I mean, I immediately went to uh, the library into Barnes and Noble to do extra research because I was like, there is something here. To me, the reason I love Final Fantasy 16 is because as someone that has spent a, a great deal of his life studying religion, this is philosophy of religion 101. 
here, um, all, all the way back from the Greeks and even before that. Um, I, I particularly have studied ancient Near Eastern religions and myths, and, and this is the culmination of that for me. And so I'm looking at it from like, oh my gosh, the, the nuance and the, um, the, the little things that they were able to pick up on that help people reckon with not just that, this idea of free will. I actually think that it's a lot deeper than that. Um, this idea of the relationship between humanity, reality, dogma, truth, and yeah. will in that. And, and to me, that was like, this, is, this game is saying something really, really important, even if I have to help people unpack it, which is why I'm, I'm doing a stream about it uh, <laughs> yeah. this semester. So... Um, but for me, all that to say, it really, really worked, really, really clicked. I've got critiques of it. Um, I, I am right there with Ryan and Clark when I when they're saying that the gameplay limits the game. Um, it is a combat-focused game, and that is to its detriment. Um, and then there are parts story-wise where, uh, yes, it's the height of Game of Thrones, and it's also the last season of Game of Thrones as well. They kind of drop the ball. <laughs> <a little> <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. That's, that's actually a pretty well, good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. I, I just want to chime in real quick, too, and say, you know, with combat-focused games, uh, I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. However, when you look at combat-focused games, um, a lot of them are a lot shorter. And I think it is tremendously hard to make a game that is primarily focused on combat go on for 40 to 70 hours. Yeah, uh, That is, is tends to be where you run into issues with that. But if you do 20 sure and under... Yeah, I, well, yeah. <laughs> but also, too, there's a lot of things in Elden Ring meta to combat that make Elden Ring interesting, particularly exploration, right? Which is one thing that, mm. say, um, 16 uh, doesn't, 16 doesn't, doesn't have, right? So, right, yeah, yeah right. so. Yeah. Okay, okay, so I'm, I'm a little, okay. First of all, I'm a little surprised. I was expecting, uh, I guess I'm not that surprised, but like I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that we didn't have one person on here who was like way up here on it. Um, because that's kind of what I was hoping for at first, but I'm actually glad it went this way because to me, it's reflective of the fact that despite like some of the kickback we got last week, um, there seems to be in, in the majority of people I actually speak to kind mm. of a similar sentiment, a sentiment that like, it, it starts off really strong and then it hits kind of this lull point and then we have sort of a divide between right. people who really like the ending and people who don't like it. Right. Um, so I think there's a lot more agreement on that than even I initially expected there to be. So that's really interesting to me. Now, speaking of the ending and the fact that uh, two, two of you really felt like it landed and it worked, I would love to get your thoughts on that. I'd love to get your breakdown on it. So why don't we start again with Clark? Um, why, why don't you explain to us what you think about it, uh, made it, made it work, made it land for you. Um, you know, and I, 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 before I even really, uh, decided to give like a metric on the ending, I, I, I actually, I played through it twice. I got the platinum and it wasn't until I got the platinum that I really like kind of just thought about the way that it was making me feel for me the most emotional scene and this is the one that kind of separates me like i i actually i i, I have trouble i was explaining to my wife what what the last scene of the game was the post-credit scene and i got emotional explaining it and it's it's hard for me to even describe why it's so good but um the the post-credit scene 
where we get this kind of idea of what the game was all about, like the world that was built as a result of our actions. Um, you know, the the ordinary magic, like as he blows into the flame, as the little boy blows into the flame and the Final Fantasy theme kicks in and he's creating magic mm -hmm. through work. There's something about that that resonated with me so deeply and, and just really hit all the strings that um, were being plucked throughout the, the course of the story. Um, you know, that that was really good. And, and then, you know, the, for when the second time I beat it, I got that I got that notification um, that I had gotten the platinum, and the platinum is called the Chronicler, you know, and mm. you get, you are awarded the Chronicler, and the reason I found that so, like, interesting in this meta sense is that, uh, for all the uh, lack of ambiguity that this game has, like it almost to a fault explains things, um, you know, you sometimes doesn't leave a lot of negative space where I think negative space could have been used in the story. Um, it has this ambiguous ending and the value of that ambiguity was that the the freedom that was created through the process of you know killing god landed in this way because we are handed the pen we get to write the ending as we see it it was like the one part of this game that was ambiguous and it, it for me that that really landed emotionally but um you know, from a philosophical and religious standpoint, the, um, you know, the, the, one of the main themes of all Final Fantasies, and it, it, it's this idea that uh, gets turned into a trope, you know, oh, all JRPGs, you kill God. Well, it's kind of like, it's more of a motif of Final Fantasy. It's part of the series identity of Final Fantasy is that it's not really killing God, killing the Demiurge or any of its, of its, uh, you know, uh, Gnostic equivalents are, are it's really about a self-reflection so what Ultima represented was this flawed incomplete version like an uninvolved version so it was this unevolved reflection of ourselves you know this the nemesis to our narcissist and um, you know how that relates to all the problems that the world has does sort of relate on this grand scale to the problems the our actual world has that the solution really is inside and so to theatrically um you know present this self battle you know this battle against this uh uh you know idealized false idealized version of ourself uh landed for me and uh i don't want to take up all the time talking about it because i know that professor noctus has probably something similar to say but that's kind of the crux for me of why the ending really landed is that um you know we're given this opportunity to write our own ending uh and that uh, it all seemed to make sense for me it just clicked for me all the things that we did to you know break the the boundaries of 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 causality and and freedom just to create this ordinary world how that how that was represented in joshua's religion you know when joshua would uh would would praise his deity he would say thank the founder and then if you look up what the okay. founder is the founder is just this grassroots oh, story about him yeah. yeah guy that made a house on a hill you know there's something just kind of um uh beautifully representative of of both the um you know s secular and faithful in that and and uh i i thought that it was just it was really socially sound for me 
Okay, there's a couple things I want to return to with that, but let's go over to Wade real quick. I'm excited to hear your take on that. Yeah, so um, in, in a lot of my classes, I talk about this idea of muthos and logos, right? And um, right. The, way, the way that I bring it up is I, I start the class by asking the question, what do you know for sure? And we're going to get all kinds of answers, right? Especially for 18, 19, 20-year-olds. They're going to respond by saying, you know, life is hard or everything works out or, you know, mom's paycheck is great for me. So whatever it is. And then I ask a question of, so how do you know this? How did you come to that conclusion? And they're going to usually couch it in a story. Now, this is how I begin describing muthos and logos, right? And the stories undergird the practicality. They inform the, the logic behind the, the ways that we perceive the world, the ways that we un- interpret reality. What this game did, and I think that it did it so well in the ending, was it doesn't dissolve the mythos. It, instead, it vivifies it. Clive right. embodies all of the mythos, all of the stories, and these stories... Um, there is a degree of truth that's greater than the fact of the supreme being, Ultima, right? They are, uh, the, the um, dominance can prime into what's called an icon. And an icon is, is essentially the image. It's an image of God if you're going back to uh, Greek and early, especially New Testament understandings of image of God, and even further back into Jewish and, and ancient Near Eastern. This idea of icon is the representation of the divine mystery. And what we see with all the dominance is that there is a fail, a failure or a flawed or an incompleteness to the way that they are representing the divine. And it's an incompletion that even Ultima has himself. We then see Clive as he's taking on all of these muthos, these different stories. He's embodying them by the end in a way that is pure, unfettered in the way that it was, it, it could be. And that is a direction of, of the will. So one of the things that really worked for me was that there, it is a culmination of muthos that moves into a logos that is will-directed. Now, once we get to that final credit scene, I'm so glad that you brought that one up, Clark. I was like in tears mm. because the, 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 the muthos is contained to a book at this point. Right. And what are the kids doing? They're playing magic. They're playing right. um, who's going to be Bahamut, who's going to be Ifrit, who's going to be all yeah. of these characters. And they're fighting over who's going to be. And yeah. what it, They're what engaged it, in logos. They're engaged in it, right? And, and yeah. it, it's like, even though everything is settled, that sort of tension, that sort of um, conflict of reality and our part in reality, it continues. And the, it, it's, it's as... Um, as common as children fighting on a playground and stuff. And that says a lot about um, the philosophy of religion, our clinging to muthos, sometimes without logos, uh, a story. Um, you know, I, I think of some of my colleagues and friends who um, hold on to like the, the creation museum stuff. This is a fundamental, literal sort of happening, but there's no real logos to that, right? There's no practicality. And then vice versa, when we just have practicality and rules, um, dogma, but there's no undergirding story to vivify it. Instead, you have this combination. Um, I'll, I'll say this final piece. As soon as I heard Clive called Muthos, I freaked out. And I told a friend of mine, I was like, I think they're going to bring out this idea of Logos. 
And I, I was like, if they do, I think this is what's going to happen. It's going to have something to do with Joshua. I was like, I, I don't even know if, what, what's going on with Joshua. But when Ultima said, is this the power of Logos? I screamed. Like, I like <laughs> threw my kid. It was the <laughs> moment for me. I was like, this game, 10 out of 10 for me. I don't know. That's how it stuck that landing for me. So, so you're talking about the scene where, um, like, uh, uh, the is, is sort of, yeah, he's sort of, uh, in and out of this sort of state he's seeing visions of different characters in the game and then like he's pulled out of that by joshua in the end and then ultima's up there and then he yeah yeah okay absolutely all right um ryan oh anything you would like to add about your (laughs) thoughts on the ending um i echo a lot of the sentiments that wade and clark so beautifully said here though there were some issues for me Personally, I think the biggest issue was kind of that in part of the conclusion that kind of the answer to the oppression of the bearers was kind of to make them the same as everyone else. And that kind of resolved their their depression. I mean, depression. Uh, oppression. Oh, oppression, like, yeah. Oppression, sorry. I mean, they're, um, they're yeah, definitely that, less depressed yeah. while dead. <laughs> yeah, that, that was like... The, the resolution for their oppression was to um, essentially make them the same as everyone else. And that was probably the most disappointing aspect of the ending to me, because I think that that doesn't really reflect reality quite too well, right? Mm-hmm. As we're, all, we're always going to have these sorts of differences. And so I, I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like if there was some way to make it so that the bearers would always be different but Mm -hmm. that humanity would have to learn how to accept those differences Mm -hmm. within one another i feel like that would have had a more powerful conclusion to me than to say humanity just can't deal with people being different so we all need to be the same same (laughs) (laughs) in order for in order for you know oppression and discrimination and those sorts of things to end um and another thing too is kind of, uh, you know, the power of friendship is something that people often say in a derogatory manner Yourself. when talking about JRPGs. But um, let's be honest here. I think, at least in all the, the times that I've had that have been like the worst in my life, the power of my friends and my family is why I'm here uh, and right. why I enjoy and live life. So I, I think that a lot of times people use um, the power of friendship to be, you know, condescending toward JRPGs. But if you can genuinely make people feel that their connections are what allow them to overcome adversity in life, I think that's really a powerful message. I think that the reason that got a bad rap for JRPGs is because a lot of JRPGs try to skip immediately toward, well, we're because we're friends, everything just works out. but if you genuinely built that up in the right way and make Mm -hmm. someone feel that feel that i think that is the ultimate um message to send to someone because that's something that um i think deeply resonates with most people however one of the things that kind of um bothered me about the ending and you know several points throughout 16 was kind of you know you're, you're telling a story that in a lot of ways is one of the most power of friendship Final Fantasies. 
and then we don't have any involvement from the rest of the party in that ending. Um, right, there's a you there's know. a disconnect. It's like they it, didn't quite uh, the story and the gameplay and everything didn't quite mesh right. together to tell us that. Right, yeah. right, exactly, right. Because there was right. even the scene where you know there's multiple scenes where Jill and Joshua they're like, Clive, you can't do it alone. Right. And then then we do it, it alone. <laughs> and then we just do it alone, right? <laughs> and even 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 yeah. if there was you know kind of a cliche moment where Clive is like, you know, I have, you know, Jill and Joshua, like, in my heart. And that's the reason I'm able to to overcome this. Um, that would have at least helped drive the message home. But um, there wasn't really anything there to kind of, you know, make you connect that. And then also, too, there was, you know, this game didn't have, par like, party members in the traditional way. But considering that you have party members following you the whole time really you always have jill around for the most part uh sometimes they separate for you but it's just it's, it feels kind of contrived um when they do separate from you when i'm like there's no reason for you to actually you know like you know not be here um the game just kind of wants you to not be there for some reason and so i was fine with it just being clive and it just being clive's journey but I think the story was not wrote in sync with that. And so um, it wasn't a Clive's yeah. journey story. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. It was specifically not a Clive's journey story. Yeah. And so that moment, I mean, there were other times in the game, but that moment at the end specifically where, you know, you're supposed to overcome, you know, this adversity and it's supposed to be specifically about him overcoming that through his connections that he's made. Um, and then there's no involvement from them. And as much comparison as this game can get to to Dragon Ball, I think even <laughs> Dragon Ball, I think even Dragon Ball can have moments um, oh, of course, where yeah. or Goku, Goku's connections actually uh, are why he's able to defeat the enemy. Right, the spirit bomb with Majin Buu. Right, like spirit everyone bomb, that yeah. yeah, everyone that Goku helped throughout his journey. Right, it was made from you know, their spiritual energy, right? Even that was like, you know, kind of a moment. And so I think that um, even that could have actually been helpful. Um, again, it, it sounds cliche on the surface, but I think there's a reason those, those types of tropes go along with these types of stories and messages for a good reason, so. Gotcha. Okay, I want to pass it over to Kaysen real quick. Do you have anything that has popped up amongst... Uh, what's been said here that's I just want to give you a chance to say if there if anything's come to you uh no a ton of things are coming to me I want to say them as people are talking and I know this isn't really the, <laughs> the way to do that on one day chat. we'll all be in a room together that would be awesome that would be great um I I um have well maybe the best way that I can put it is um somebody mentioned before I think it was um it was you, Clark, uh, you had mentioned something about um, how Clive had kind of embodied this uh, new kind of thing that could uh, get rid of Ultima as the uncaring god and replace it with something that was more sincere. Is is that you had you had a different way of putting it, but I can't remember exactly. I, what it was. I think it was just um, that the the conflict between Clive and Ultima had had more to do with uh, being a reflective. It was it was narcissists looking into the pool. Right. And dismantling the vision of what 
what we consider to be strong, what we consider to be strength, what what is leverage, you know. Um, so that that was more the the way I envision. Like it was it was almost necessary that Ultima not be characteristic that he not have features. It was important that he be featureless. That uh, mm. you know he was kind of this idealized self. Like that's. I mean, in Eastern philosophy, that's kind of the the idea behind kill God, you know, in 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 Buddhism. So it just it well, what is that? Really There's well that famous me. proverb: if if you ever see the Buddha, that kill him, right? Y- yeah. <laughs> uh, but also, would that explain why Ultima kind of looks like a Greek statue? I, you know, I I'm I'm not here to just to to comment on on why they uh, made Ultima not have eyelids or do any of the stuff that they. Uh, they did with him uh i just, just think that they the were like mm, hey kind of creepy you know i think they just <laughs> went nose, with... though and i don't know he's got a lot of uh, roman greco-roman features i think that there are some features see in yeah. a statue yeah yeah uh, another one and i never really got this idea out there uh very well early on uh but hearing you kind of talk about that kind of brought this idea back to the forefront of my mind that clive had an intuition that ultima was not truly divine Right, yeah. and that's in his uh, moment with Harpocrates. You had that, yeah. Uh, and, and the question, okay, go ahead. And well, and Joshua too. Joshua was very uh, constantly like the aberration in the system. Like you know, he would he would constantly show up as like Phoenix is not on the circle of Malleus. You know, yeah, he went off yeah. on his weird on his weird journey, and so he was sort of meant to. Re- I mean, and you know, from a really kind of over the top, you know, Joshua meet being yeshua you know which is jesus the name of jesus yeah. the phoenix being you know you know rising again you know like barnabas parting the seas like there's some really obvious uh you know uh symbols that they use to kind of represent that joshua and was supposed to kind of be a component that breaks the system and generates salvation from you know this demiurge concept which is i mean which is very borrowed but i think it it just it goes i think it worked a lot better than um games that didn't have the space to tell that story even even my favorites like xenogears (laughs) well i just wanted to throw this one out here then that when clive had the intuition that ultima was not truly divine that that intuition itself is is the voice of god that ultima is some what would you call it? Some pagan Greek god version of God that thinks he's the ultimate god, but is not. As Clive embodying yeah. the true Logos is able to actually defeat Ultima, if that makes yeah. sense, right? Yeah, I think I think Wade's got this one. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, you know, one of the pieces that I teach in a lot of my classes is um, especially uh, I I do one class on the Gospels and kingship where we talk about the Gospel of John and you I I think you mentioned in the last podcast that John chapter one talks of Jesus as the word or the Logos right and a lot of people think that this is going to usurp um, that this is this is the um, usurpation of all of the stories that have come from the past, but when you read Mark, then Matthew, then Luke, going into John, which is chronolo- chronologically the way that they would have been written, um, you're seeing that Jesus, as the Word, the Logos, is the fulfillment of yes. that mythos, right? That's so the Word. In yeah. in the Logos, you have the the collection 
of all of the muthos, but not the dogmatic muthos, because the dogmatic muthos is where we got the holy wars that um, would would be, you know, our icon versus your icon, the Philistines, right? This this mm, is where good. we get that sacral divine war tension, which ultimately Jesus as the Logos doesn't seem particularly interested in. This is what I think is particularly interesting about this. You have so many different representations of dogmatic, um, legalistic, ritualized religious sects from the Iron Kingdom to the Circle of Malleus, right? And each one of these represents a, a good piece, but also a flawed piece of this mm -hmm. religiosity and a flawed piece of this understanding of the divine. And Clive comes with this truest form, this logos, which brings, you know, a, a, an end um, to Ultima, who is um, masquerading. I think that's particularly yes. interesting. Yeah. Very good. Uh, the way I would think of it, and this is beyond 30,000 foot view, this is like 50 billion thousand foot view. Um, <laughs> that, and so, so please, just this is very general, and don't <laughs> nobody hate me on this, and I'm not talking to you guys, I'm talking to everyone else who's going to watch this. Yeah. If we look at the Old Testament as being mythos, and the New Testament as being logos, right? Mm -hmm. that, the, uh, that, you, that you have them both, right? That you have the logos, which is then used to interpret the mythos, and that that's like the fulfillment, if that makes sense, right? So you don't get rid of the mythos, right? You don't, you, you, and, and by, by, by the same token, you can't just, you, you cannot just survive on, on logos alone. Yeah. You, you need to have them both together. And I think that was as, uh, who is it, St. Ambrose, 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 yes, Ambrose, um, convinced Augustine that the Old Testament's still important. You still have, you can't just get rid of it. Um, you right. have to keep that as well as the New Testament, which is the Logos, anyways. Right, which is really interesting. You, you bring up Augustine, who um, yeah. Augustine, who is um, bringing about. It, it's it's interesting because he is one of the first advocates that said we're going to look at these archetypal stories of Genesis and creation as literal. He was turning the mythos right. or the mythos into Logos, and it's like ah, you can't do that. But You're right, and then together. Yes, yes, and that causes right. trouble later on down the line, yeah. Right. Instead, they work in concert together, and that's what I love about the Clive and Joshua piece together. Yeah, because it requires the two of them, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is what Joshua kind of discovers there towards the end with the mural. Right. Okay, um, so we've talked here a lot about uh, theme, sort of like more abstract concepts. Um, but let's get a little bit into the execution of those things. So you're saying you're picking up these, you know, these bits and pieces and, and it's spiking or sparking, you know, like excitement in you as, as you're, you're hearing the terms logos and, and mythos in the game. Um, how do you think that they did from a technical storytelling point at like actually foreshadowing and paying those concepts off? Uh, why don't we start with Clark on that? Uh, a little poorly, to be honest. Um, uh, I had to spend a lot of time in the ATL, you know, the active time lore, to look at stuff. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big Elden Ring fan. I, I like sometimes having to work for my lore. I'm, I'm not suggesting that. But this wasn't presented necessarily as a game that, that was necessary to fully enjoy. And, you know, a, a casual observer isn't going to be able to watch the cutscenes of this game and really get all that you know like the the context of zemeckis and the children of zemeckis like the 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 really potentially fascinating uh 
you know, foil that Barnabas could have been for Clive when their the amount of dialogue that they had was so limited and and you know there it does feel like uh this is something that if novelized you know where in a novel all of that context is necessarily going to be on print uh it it works so i i don't even know if i who who i would necessarily fault for the execution i i don't know if i'd fault may hero you know i think that the the bones of the story and even the dialogue itself is written pretty well. Um, I also think too, that uh, some of the characterization was so heavily carried by the incredible performances in the game that sometimes it, we, we lose how bare some of the dialogue actually is. Like I am so happy you're saying this. So, because the people were acting like I was a moron for saying this. And like <laughs> these conversations between Clive and and uh and Barnabas I I really felt were just ankle deep in terms of like what they're actually getting into compared to the depth it could have gone. You know, well, that yeah, there's way the, more to get into than they actually do. All the context behind Barnabas and you know, I don't know if this was an issue where they had too many characters. Uh, you know, you know, they spent a lot of time on side characters that had great resolutions. You know, we talk about Gav. Gav was a great character. If if Gav weren't in the story, we might have had a villain that we understood. You know, we might have had, uh, you know, a foil between. Uh, I mean, like the dramatic tension of parting the seas and then going and that getting your cool, ass. Man getting your ass yeah. handed to you by by barnabas and then yeah. and then like he just calls you muthus and then pieces out it was i was like wait wait no i just read the active time lore like i i know that you know there's that your your mother started this cult i want to hear about that i want to talk about that stuff you know uh but no there's none of that and so dlc um, uh they're saving up that's tickling you they're teasing you <laughs> yeah 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 i agree so that that my take was that the, there were some flaws in execution of a good story um that that came down to and that uh and i you know i i'm friends with ben star i, I find him to be an amazing guy and i watch mm. everything he does and i've watched him talk about and he's talked to me about like the way that he portrayed his character and you talk to him and he put a lot of his own spin like this is how so a lot of the context that we feel like we hear is stuff that just like the actors came up with and that's great from like a hearing it perspective but yeah. like but but then there's a disconnect between who's telling the story now like that's all of that context was given by an actor in the booth not on paper or right, not which in means this there's way. nothing there's nothing to back it up right exactly. in the text yeah, itself I see what you mean yeah can, can I, I'm, I'm curious to see if we'll all agree on this this goes back to even ff13 it was one of the larger complaints about that game with its uh, data logs right that like a majority of like necessary context to really um get at some of the meat of what that story was about was relegated to those data logs i really tend to dislike these kinds of uh whether you, whether it's active time lore or data logs or just like a database of stuff. There, there's very few examples, maybe like Mass Effect, where I really like it. 
but I think but a lot the of the presentation in Mass Effect is is different. Yes, presentation is a lot more engaging. Yes, and, and with I, this I, one, you're just going through like an encyclopedia or like a dictionary, you know, and it's like uh, okay, it's hard to keep it all straight, and it's not encouraging to continue reading. I feel like the inclusion of this sort of um, you know database like this, where people can go to learn more about the story and get more context or learn more lore or whatever can often be used as a crutch um, where a lot of that stuff should be given through mandatory cutscenes and and uh, dialogue in the story. We had similar complaints about Final Fantasy VIII where you play that game kind of just relying on the main cutscenes and you miss ridiculous amounts of foreshadowing yeah. about that game's yeah. twist, which feels like it comes out of nowhere when really... It's right there from the very beginning of the game when you're sitting at the desk in in the classroom. Like there's hints about that right there, but you can't, you don't get it in the main thread. And a lot of I feel like this game relies on either doing all the side quests um, or reading the ATL. And I just really did I don't appreciate when it's used as a crutch like that. What what do other people feel? in regards to how the ATL was used in this game. Anybody can go. I'm not going to keep picking who talks. <laughs> <laughs> the only Boy. thing, the only time that I like that kind of, uh, of lore is, is Elden Ring where it's like, mm. it's really a journey. Like you have to like read item descriptions and then go explore areas, like mm. look at pictures and say, Oh, I have to, I have to do the work of doing this. And it's its own kind of game. Like there's a mechanic to learning the story that in itself is a special kind of fun challenge. Uh, uh, not a chore. Otherwise you won't get the story. Um, yeah. Or at least to the extent that they've, they've written it. And, and I think that that's an important designation, like in 16 or in any final fantasy, you yeah. are being given a story. And so there's this idea that it's going to be complete. I mean, gosh, the 15 discourse was all about this, right? Mm -hmm. All of the elements of the story were there. Um, trust me on that. I researched it. Um, <laughs> but the, the idea behind it was that's not the best way of, of learning a story. That's bad storytelling in this particular medium. For Elden Ring, it's great. Well, I think that the FromSoft games in particular, maybe this is even true a little bit of a game like Bioshock, right? The story has already happened by the time you actually in the timeline of, of the right. game world by the time you start playing you're yeah. discovering yeah. the aftermath of it really right Something you're, like you're there breath, um, breath of the wild similar kind of yeah thing. yeah exactly yeah. so you're going through and exploring and trying to piece together a portal the puzzle of what happened here portal oh, game oh. portal portal very very <laughs> similar oh, so yeah. i think in in a you know in that format that it works like you're saying yeah. but in something like this where most of the story is given through like dialogue, like characters interacting yeah. with each other, more of like a cinematic experience than say an emergent one. Um, it, it's, it's really uh, not where I prefer to see databases of this kind. Mm -hmm. um, no, I, I, I'm noticing uh, something else too, as we bring up Breath of the Wild Portal and you mentioned Elden Ring. I can't remember who mentioned Elden Ring, um, but you have something of a game that stands on its own without you having to know any of the lore. 
Right. Right. You just the gameplay and the exploration and the battle mechanics. That's enough. And for ninety percent of players, they they don't need to do that. Uh, Final mm. Fantasy Sixteen is a different case where this is more story driven, and um, it seems like things are hidden in that sense. That the the game doesn't necessarily stand on its own just without um, without the deeper story. If that makes right. sense. Right. You almost yeah. put a lot of pressure on the story by default by yes. saying this yeah. is a story first game uh yeah. even prior uh, even um over gameplay in all aspects um that means that you have to be pretty flawless about how you tell that story otherwise the entire experience kind of falls apart as a result yeah. and that's t- that's really tough to do it is know? it is um okay but, yeah yeah i was Go just ahead. Gonna... Well, you finish up real quick yeah, I was just going to say one more thing regarding that, too. I think one of the difficulties I came across, too, um, with the story and the ATLs is that every time I felt like a mystery um, was teased and, like, there's something, there's so many interesting things in this game that I wanted to just know more about, uh, the ATLs actually didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And that yeah, was, it that was hit was or miss. Awesome. It was hit or miss. Right. And, and there, were, there were so many things. And, you know, as I watched you guys, uh, as I watched your podcast series, I, I noticed that you guys came across a lot of the same frustrations where there was something really interesting. And I'm like, please tell me more about that thing. And the game's like, no. And, <laughs> and, maybe and that's, DLC. Yeah, yeah like may, maybe DLC. And I'm, I'm hopeful. I hate hoping for that. Announced Ryan, was yeah. there something in particular? Was there one thing that stuck out to you where they would set something up and you really wanted to know that and then there wasn't a payoff for it? What was that one thing for you that was like the uh, most annoying? I'm trying to think. There was like half a dozen. <laughs> like just, 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 just in like the beginning. And Mike, I know you're going to relate to this because me and you, we, we had the same thought going into this. <laughs> Um, what was with the out of body scene with Clive mm. and like oh, him with... seeing from Torgal's perspective, right? Yeah, he... yeah. yeah. What was that about? Uh, what was Media about? They they uh... both well, uh, they it all kind of felt like a lot of these things were just red herrings. Like they right. were they were meant to divert your attention, uh, or, or think purpose. that it's something else, and then it ended up. You know what I mean? Like yeah, uh, right. Which is, which is fine if you, if you can the, do. If, yeah, if the mystery is even greater, right? If the, exactly, if even, I was yeah. going to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but if it's, oh, it's just that, yeah, you know, then It's like then they that's passed like... up would have been a lot cooler for something that was less cool. Why yeah. did Joshua not approach Clive much, much sooner? Like, it's, like he's just watching him yeah. from the shadows go mm-hmm. about doing what he's doing. And it, it, it plays us off as if he's suspicious of him or that there's some reason why he's not. Uh, and then it's just like, oh, they meet up in Twinside after he's battled uh, Muhammad. And it's, okay, we can travel together now. Like, and, why? Yeah. <laughs> well, and then also, too, there's a really big one. Who is the hooded guy that Clive saw at the opening yeah. of the game? Yes. Like, that's, that's also still a big mystery to me, too. Like, I, I assume now that it's Ultima, but then why does Ultima then look um, like how Joshua well, looks Okay, later. so there, there is kind of an answer to that, though, in the lore. Is okay, there, so let's please, hear it. Yeah. So, is it the ATL, you're saying? Well, so in, in the, the, the reason is because the cult that saved Joshua, they have been a long-standing... The Undying, right? Yeah. The Undying have been a long-standing enemy of Ultima. And Ultima's best play at gaslighting them was to make uh, his enemies 
look like Clive's enemies. So he emulated uh, the robe of the Undying, which was what Joshua was wearing because he had joined the Undying after the Undying saved him. So mm -hmm. that's 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 okay, why okay. he chose that. Yeah. It, if, but it's, th if this is the case, yeah. Then then why does the hooded guy show up at Drake's breath? when clive is not around you know he's 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 there at the crystal in the the iron kingdom and then he's 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 also there at drake's fang yeah. right before the titan fight and he's just kind of standing off like where no one could see him and he's like doing some magic and manipulating stuff yeah. well that, why why would joshua. ultima take that form no no that's joshua that no joshua was at you're saying he was at drake's fang yeah. Uh, the person who made um, Clive become Ifrit by like moving his hands, the, like Clive was like, I want to be Ifrit, and then some hooded figure like snaps his fingers, and then Clive becomes Ifrit. That was Joshua? The, yes. Whoa. How do we know that? I'm not sure that I agree. I don't know. That okay, that's, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> I just don't think that any of, uh, that there's any pre. Okay, let's say that, let's say I'm wrong. And that those those undying hooded figures that we see with Joshua's faces, you know, um, are still Ultima. the The reason for gaslighting is the same. Like you're driving Clive to fight his enemy, you know, to fight Ultima's enemy, right. and that is beneficial to Ultima. So, I mean, that still makes sense to me. If... I mean, my my assumption was that it was Ultima. I guess the confusion was why take that form. I don't even think anyone's actually observing him in those scenes. That's why it's weird if it's Ultima. If it's Joshua, it's weird too because I I at least I know for a fact in the scene at Drake's breath where right. they go to the Iron Kingdom, he's actually in, headed towards Twinside at the same time. He's not there. He's he's walking with uh, what's her name? Yote. Uh, Yote. Yeah, yeah. They're they're on their way to Twinside, uh, like right on the back of that scene. Sure. And he like senses, oh no, Ultima's reaching out towards Clive again. So at least that hooded figure for sure was not Joshua. I, I'm 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 I could be wrong, but I I I do actually think that it's still going to be the same reason that you know uh, it's an attempt to kind of turn Ultima's enemy against his enemy, you know. Um I still think that that's, that's to, to, to be suspicious of the undying. Right. To make yeah. Clive suspicious of them. Because he right. definitely was. He was. But, and I was to be, too in turn. Yeah. But to be clear, the 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 execution of that, your criticism of the execution of that, and why is Joshua not just meeting up with Clive like immediately absolutely requires an explanation like i'm i'm not defending that decision at all it was done entirely for dramatic effect so yeah. right for the for the uh, player not yeah for the story, yeah man. okay yeah. We, we haven't been to wade here in a second i want to get your thoughts on some of this yeah. stuff what do you think about it yeah i, I mean I, th I think to a degree i can go with you clark um in, in the idea that there is an ambiguity to it i mean there's so much of this yeah. game built on ambiguity Instead, the, the hooded figure to me wasn't about who is this, but by the end, I'm seeing that it's a manipulation into coercing Clive 
to do Ultima's will. And so this tension that's rising in him, ultimately, ultimately everything <laughs> that he does um, to Clive is to break his will. And so the, the hooded figure is a, uh, in the prologue particularly, is a, um, is a symbol of Ultima is present, um, and it, it, this is a moment that is testing Clive's resolve and Clive's will. And I think that every time that you see that, you're seeing another moment where Clive's will is being shattered to some degree, or at least assaulted. Um, that's the way that I took that. Um, okay. Now, there were several moments where I was like, well, is that Joshua? Is it not? And I think that the ambiguity is part of it. You're supposed to right. think in terms of, like, Clive is as confused as you are, right? And it's creating some trauma for him. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's move off this for a second, uh, because I want to talk a little bit about setups and payoffs with the Metia portion of this as the ambiguous, the ambiguous part of the ending. Is there anybody here who's like on board? It landed the Metia setup and payoff. Are we, where, how, where are our feelings on that? Big nope. Big nope. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm not alone on this. Good. So, so um, nobody well, has a strong like feeling song. for what they, they, they feel like they're certain they know what <laughs> Metia represents and nope. why it's important to the story. No, nope. not sure at all no. okay and and before we move on you talked about the atl thing yeah. um the one of the most annoying things and i think they just patched this but for whatever reason i had three i played the game early early and for whatever reason there were the like there was about six entries that were locked behind an interaction in new game plus only that you had to talk to oscar next to clive's quarters in the hideaway and in new game plus to him in new game plus and you would get the final six entries and they were like massively important what and come on i, I cannot <laughs> so, so are any of them about metia or the moon or they were about ultima they were about like the world okay. system i mean it was a big deal like they were important and i remember talking to gerard the completionist about this we were like big mad about that because like you get the platinum before you even get those. Like you don't need, you just need to get to the final level. There's, but it was like things like Zemeckis and the Children of Zemeckis, like oh, all like good. the big stuff. And so I don't know, I they I don't know if they patched that with 1.10, but a lot of people don't have those entries and have the platinum. Yeah, it, it it was just really strange to me that the game literally starts and almost ends with the image of Metia. And yeah. they just literally did nothing with it in the story. And it they just, showed it a hundred times throughout it, the game. It really felt like DLC bait, and I'm not super into that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, um, so we don't have to spend much time on that unless you got something right. Go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, I really thought that it would be the home world of Ultima. Mm, that you can kind of see like in the that. distance, right? Or, or lead into uh, that. And it would be connected to Ultima in some way. Right. And and if it were, they could just spend a sentence right. and we would be done talking about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. Yeah, just, it just something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Would have. They want. Least been they like... want people talking and guessing. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. Mm. I, yeah. I think you're right, though. That probably yeah. will we be of all of all the things that I would imagine a DLC would cover. I mean, that's like prime that's that's got to be it you can't yeah. feature that image as many times as you did 
and not be completely cognizant of, I am establishing a very strong setup right now. This has to be paid off at some point. <laughs> I have mm. to explain what this thing is. And it's well, Final Fantasy 16 2 is going to be a whole thing. So it was, uh, yeah, it was literally a red herring. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, okay. Literally. So, uh, well, it could one, one more thing flying up along with the pattern of the moon. One more thing. Way. And then I want to move into, uh, just some, some developer quotes and some, uh, you know, dev history stuff. Um, the other thing, oh shoot, I just lost it. <laughs> we got talking <laughs> about Matty and I just lost it. There was another thing that they set up. The, the, that... the girl, the medicine girl. Okay. There's that, but that wasn't what I was thinking of. How do, what did everyone feel about that? Like was that similar feeling? Like, was like did, did everyone feel like she's going to be important here at like, some point? They keep I mean, showing this like, girl. I was like, oh, when the Leviathan DLC drops, we found the dominant. That's what people are saying. Yep. Yeah. Yep. She she yep. isn't not important. Okay. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're going somewhere with her in the DLC for sure. Which no. you know what? Yeah. But isn't that weird? I just I, yeah. I don't. I don't know. I don't. So love there's. It. This is it, why Mike and I want to only analyze yeah. games after this whole cycle has run through of the DLC and sequels yeah. and everything. I mean, and and there are things that you can set up for DLC that don't. But it's just that there's a couple. Th those two in particular for me felt like they're really were necessary for how the story was going to conclude. Like the story almost doesn't stand on its own without them. That's the level of setup they had. Yes. You know, to have like. You know, like there's a few weird, like there's this weird character that you know the character that uh, uh, takes uh, uh, Gav's eye, like you see him lurking about the hideaway later, like you know it mm -hmm. when the hideaway moves, that dude's still around. It's probably him. You're like, mm -hmm. oh, that's a cool little Easter egg you could make DLC out of. I'd be okay with that because it is yeah. massively inconsequential. The yeah. moon. <laughs> Yeah. That is way different. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I think it's suffice to say for now that the game has several instances or examples of this kind of setup where it doesn't necessarily do much to pay it off. It feels like sure. it kind of goes nowhere. So we'll just say, is it fair to say, based on what we've said so far, that for some of us thematically, the game was rich. It had something there to really... Um, dig your teeth into, but that the execution didn't necessarily serve that thematic core as well as it could have. Yeah, everybody, 100 percent. Wade, I feel like you might feel differently, so I want to hear that. I love the ambiguity, uh, okay. to be perfectly okay. honest. So, and and I'm okay with that. Um, to me, there weren't, there were not gaping plot holes in this. To me, that would utterly unfound and contradict other parts of the game. Now, there are some things that aren't explained, um, but to me, it's cohesive um, in, a, uh, in a way. I, I just want to clarify, I, I'm not, I don't necessarily mean uh, the ambiguity or that like mm -hmm. things weren't explained, but like, like um, in terms of technical storytelling, they showed mm -hmm. us this, they didn't do anything with it later, or instead of doing that, why don't they set up a little bit more because, okay. uh, for instance, one thing you said, Wade, that I actually really liked was the idea of Mythos going and collecting all the incomplete or mm -hmm. all of the um, sort of corrupted, maybe, uh, icons, uh, you know, images of what the divine means. 
collecting all the mythos, all the stories into right. one, right? There's probably a way from a more technical storytelling standpoint is what I mean, that they could have established this concept and sort of like made it um, have a little more of like a, a, a literal analog in the story, in the world of the story, right? Um, I don't know if I'm explaining myself super well, but but what I'm getting at is that the game from the beginning sets up what you're talking about as being what this game's about, right? It's saying from right here, from the, when the game starts, okay, we're going to have a story and this is what it is. It's about this idea about mythos and logos. Mm -hmm. Instead of the establishing shot of the whole game being metia, which they do nothing with. Right. So, so, so it's, my it's question something is... that is not presented as ambiguous becoming yes. ambiguous. Right. Okay. Um, so, I, I mean, going to media, um, the, the way that I interpreted that is this is the, the um, Jill is consistently saying prayers to media, mm -hmm. media. Right. and then in the end, once, um, once this idea of logos uh, or uh, the, the person's, uh, humanity's personal will is established, to me, the dimming of that red star was this idea that... Um, we don't we don't just wish upon a star we don't pray anymore this is like we do this now like mm -hmm. our future is in our hands and so to me that that was just like a nice symbol i i, I wasn't thinking in terms of um you know i, I see a lot of talk uh, about ff14 stuff uh with the red star and planet well, down the mode right a lot of yeah, people totally. yeah, yeah. Um, oh, okay, sorry. I don't think there's anything with that. Yeah. So I just want to cut in real quick. I, I, I don't remember if I said this in our last episode, or if I said this in the episode that we recorded and then scrapped in order to do this. So I'm not I sure know, if I, I can't, said this I can't or not. I remember either. <laughs> but um, I, I remember saying something along the lines of, I would have been completely fine with Metia being relegated to something like that, like just a symbol of hope for Jill, right? And and because and you have her praying to the star at the beginning of the game um, where she and Clive are kind of standing there looking at it, right? And then mm -hmm. you have, again, a really strong tie between the star and Jill and Clive when they go to Murdoch's wife's house um, and they, like, right. stay in the barn and they're looking up at it, right? There's those two yeah. scenes in particular, two, that really mm -hmm. tie it to her. Um, if right. they had only showed Metia those two times in the game, mm. I think it would have been perfect as a setup for exactly what you're saying it is. Right. This yeah. is a setup for a representation of Jill's hope and that that hope changes from the symbol of the star, which was the mythos, the old world, whatever, into the dawn, the, 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 you know, the sun rising, which was mm -hmm. part of that quest with Clive at the end of the, and it kind of became right. their symbol of hope together at the end. She, it, she's letting go of the old, accepting the new. That could have all tied in really well had Metia only been highlighted, featured the way that it was in those mm -hmm. two scenes. Mm -hmm. But it was the first thing we see in the game, and it seemed like almost in every scene they would pan up to it. They would spend time framing that up as if it was something beyond that. And and naming it even Metia, which is so clearly yeah. close to Meteor, I yeah. think was, uh, that could have been a great way to set something up, but then of course, uh, you know, like betray that expectation, do something different with it. But I was at least expecting it to have some relevance to the plot rather mm -hmm. than just being a symbol to Jill. And I think it's fine being a symbol to Jill 
without the, I mean, okay, let me throw a more realistic number out there, 25 times that they framed it up throughout mm. the course of the game. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and, and again, this is, this is something else I want to touch on too, is that I think everybody, I mean, it's obvious, everybody goes into something, they, they have something they value, something that, that uh, works or doesn't work for them in a game is going to change depending on who you are. Uh, from somebody looking at the game from some of that sort of um, mythical, theo- theological standpoint, I think, especially someone who studied it and really understands it, this is very similar to my experience with Xenogears. First time playing it, what the hell is this even about? I have no idea. Then you go read uh, Freud and you go and read Jung and it's like, oh, wow, this is actually really cool. Yeah. So for somebody who has some background with terms like mythos and logos and, and these you know theological concepts, I feel like you're able to sort of draw on those conclusions. For other people who are just looking for technical tightness in the story, I feel like a lot of times that's me. I, I, I really focus more on, uh, okay, why are we making this choice to put the camera here? Um, why do we do a dolly in instead of a dolly out? Or why is it um, a tight shot instead of a wide shot? Uh, what are they showing me? What is in this frame that they want me to look at and why? Mm-hmm. And what is what is that? What impact is I going to have later? That's kind of more the way I go about analyzing stuff. And for somebody like that, it felt like there were so many miscues or like we're saying red herrings. Right. That it, it, it made you think, OK, story's trying to tell me this now. But it's like, nope, that actually doesn't have any importance. It's actually about this. And what I'm saying is, if it's about the mythos and logos that you're talking about, an idea that I thought was really cool, why don't we start our first shot with something that a symbol that represents that? Mm, right. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. It makes a, it makes a lot of sense to me in particular. Uh, I'm probably the least I don't want to say least educated, but in terms of knowledge on philosophy and religion and these sorts of aspects, out of the, the five of us. I would definitely be the least qualified to talk on the subject Come for sure. On, man. <laughs> uh, and, no, no. I mean, and I don't necessarily, you know, say that to you know berate myself or anything like that. But I'm just, just saying that you know, uh, I would probably represent um, maybe a gamer who yeah, you're not isn't as player. yeah right like who isn't going to be as well versed on those things. And so to have a lot of the concepts that this game lays out. Um, I think the thing that kind of drives people's interest into those things about learning about the mythology and the philosophy behind the things that inspired the story is the story, first of all, being a tightly written story. Right. right. And mm-hmm. then you then you want to then you wanting to know more about the things that that inspired the story and, and, and seeing how those things were put together. I find that's how, you know, a lot of modern people consuming these stories are kind of let down that rabbit hole first. And, yeah. you know, I feel I feel like there are aspects of this story that can be, you know, quite inaccessible, really, if you don't have like a like a base level of knowledge on, on those sorts of things. And so, you know, for, for Wade or for Clark, they're going to be able to dive into these things a lot more immediate, right? Right. Than a lot of us are. Um, and I think you could just like, you know, let's arbitrarily take like Final Fantasy VII. I feel like a lot of people could not know about any of the philosophical or mythological inspirations behind ff7 but they'll play it 
and uh, they can know what the story is about and a lot of the themes behind it and they can really wrap their head around it and i think it just insanely uh deepens their appreciation whenever they do find out about those things whereas i feel like a lot of the times in final fantasy 16 it was just like if you don't know about those things uh then you just you can't access the story right Mm -hmm. and i agree i i think i think that whenever you have something that's really reliant on outsourced symbolism um like xenogears or final fantasy 16 or final fantasy 7 or near near is a really good example Nier is a lot too, yeah. there's there's something there's something inherently about the way that it's presented that lets you know hey there's a depth to this that is drawing on something outsourced and uh, there's something that can naturally draw you to learning about that thing you know there's something uh there's something about the presentation of near in particular that says hey there's mysteries here let's go explore let me learn what this meant yeah 16 i although it relies heavily very very heavily on said outsource symbolism um it packs so much like internal lore and building within the system of the active time lore that that you you don't necessarily think the answers are coming from outside and so you're not it's not presented as this the same kind of you know mystery box thing like i happen to be lucky enough to have the knowledge as does wade um Whereas, you know, I wasn't particularly uh, versed in Jungian psychology uh, or, you know, even Gestalt uh, when I first played Nier. And I played that and I immediately knew I need to learn about those things. I don't yeah. know if you'd have that experience with Final Fantasy 16. You know, I don't think. Well, and what, what do you that. think the difference is? Why, why do you think that is? What is, is I, I know this is kind of a spotlight question. You might yeah. not have an answer for it, but I. Is there I, an example of like in this game, this happened, and that's why I knew I gotta go find out what that means, and what element of that is missing here? Well, you know, part of it's I recognize the names uh, of people. I was like, this is a this is a name of a person that doesn't fit this world system. I'm gonna go look up Gildenkratz and Rose, you know, like yeah. uh, um, you know, and, uh, or Gildenstern, you yeah, know, or I'm gonna speech, go look yeah. up, uh, you know, this name. Everything, everything, the way that Final Fantasy 16 is presented is, hey, you need to learn something, press and hold the center button. Mm. You know, like, it's not presented as something that is going to teach you about Gnosticism. It, yeah. It's not presented that way. It's presented as if it's this thing that has a complete lore set that is entirely available to you. It's this weird thing where... And I, I'm I'm not saying that if like I think people would be really lost without the active time lore. Don't get mm. me wrong, like they'd be way gone without the active time lore. But the active time lore did eliminate a lot of the curiosity, and and instead a lot of people I think were just looking at this going, well I've read all the active time lore, and I don't know what this meant. Okay. You know, um, the problem is we are fighting for the Logos when they've just given us the Mythos. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, yes, that's yes. actually a really good way that's to leave really off good. on that point. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I want to move into some dev quotes because um, there's a couple things in particular, not only related just to this game, but to the series at large, I'd love to talk to you guys about. 
Um, so regarding the theme, uh, kind of the core message of the game, I have this quote from Yoshida where he says, one of the main themes explored in Final Fantasy 16's narrative deals with the inevitable clash of values and ideals when you get multiple different people with different ideals in the same room. What is truly right and what is truly wrong? Again, because we focus so much on their dominance and they have uh, such a large part in the story, you're going to see how they think the world should be and what they think is right for the world. You're going to focus on those motivations and their struggles, and then you're going to delve even deeper and get into darker themes when it comes to how people should live. Should people live the life that was chosen for them or fight and break free from that kind of destiny? So there's a, a few things to break down in there, but as an overall quote from the horse's mouth, so to speak, about what this game is about, how well do you think they accomplished uh, that, uh, uh, I guess, delivering that message? I think he accurately described Final Fantasy XIV's um right like i think that that ff14 definitely achieves that and and they definitely you know wanted to do that here again especially with heavensward's writer and i feel like heavensward's writer um heavensward is is kind of where that theme really comes in quite well uh when you have the war between man and dragon and, it, you know, it's been going on for, I can't even remember how long. It's been going on for, like, thousands of years. And the dragons have a completely um, different perception of time because they live for, like, you know, tens of thousands of years, if I'm not mistaken. And so to them, what was just yesterday, uh, to, you know, to human beings, it was so long ago. And you have this conflict that, you know, kind of spirals out of control. And then you have... Um, the church sort of manipulating things um, in the background. And that's that's a really well-done story that kind of, you know, has the different characters like Isael and Astinian that are all uh, having different philosophies um, and coming from different viewpoints and then kind of, um, you know, coming together in the healing that happens after um, that war. And, and that story portrays all that really well, in my opinion, for what it's worth. However, for Final Fantasy 16, um, you know, to, to just be blunt, and this could be a failing of me and not necessarily the game, but um, it really does become hard to remember even what a lot of people's philosophies <laughs> necessarily were, because I guess it just didn't stand out to me enough to be like, wow, it's really, um, it's really something I'm going to carry with me in this story. I mean... Aside from Barnabas, who was basically screaming <laughs> what his ideals were. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, some aspects of Benedicta, which, you know, I, I feel like her character had so much potential and they just kind of, they really cut her short, unfortunately. Um, Sid's ideals would probably be the one that stand out by far the most. And that's kind of the foundation of the game. Um, but Sid's ideals become Clive's ideals, basically. right? Sid's, yeah, and Sid, yeah, Clive inherits Sid's ideals. So, yeah, but I can't really say that was kind of the the standout thing for me necessarily. Again, that could also be a failing of me. So, um, but that's how I would recall it. Anybody else want to step up? I think that you're you're onto a lot there, Ryan. I, when um, when I think about the game, I, th I think about 
the motivations and the perspectives that we get from uh, the Empire, this idea of, of um, justice, especially with Dion, um, we get um, some ideas of um, certainly piety and righteousness and this pursuit of, um, of uh, the, these very holy practices with Walud. Um, the Iron Kingdom faltered. For me, I'm not really sure what ideals they stood for. Maybe, maybe you can um, help me out there a little bit. Um, but it does seem like each of these different groups is focused on survival, their way of life, and what works for them. And that does come into conflict. But the, 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 the interesting thing here that I think does set it apart in some ways from 14 is that, um, is that we get Clive, who, again, like I said earlier, he is going to embody the good parts of all of these. Um, there is something to the, those perspectives, but they are in conflict. So how do you bring uh, an alleviation to that tension of coexistence? Hmm. How about you, Clark? I think, I think um, uh, Sid's mission, uh, you know, was the, the only purely effectively conveyed reflection of that developer mm. statement. Mm. I mean, the developer statement sounded very developer statement-y. Sounded <laughs> <Because laughs> like PR speak. And there was a little bit of PR. I, you know, um, Ask the, legal legalese. David Menken actually had a conversation with me. Uh, he's the voice actor for Barnabas about, he said oh. that all of the characters uh, were were inspired by you know, a, an absolute belief that what they were doing was would serve those and their loved ones. He said that that applied to every character, and I think it definitely applied uh, to to Barnabas, based on his active time lore entries and the weird interactions that we see. But the only character that really like. I know what this character is fully about because he's speaking it clearly is, is Sid. And I think they nailed Sid. And I think that Sid, you know, having a mantle through Clive uh, worked to kind of drive that home thematically, you know, mm. but other than that, I, I do feel like, I don't know what the iron kingdom was about. I like, it was, it was just, it was just a, a opportunity for us to spend mm -hmm. uh, a criminally short amount of time with one of the female characters in the game. Mm. Oh, <laughs> right. you brought well, up something I, I, meant to, yeah. I meant to bring up earlier, was how did you guys feel about Jill not going uh, with the end. Dion and, and Joshua and Clive? Like, why why stay behind? Oh, I go. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that was really rough for me. And that really goes back to this idea, you know, with her and Joshua kind of explicitly saying, like, you know, you can't do this alone. And then no, for her to no. for her for her to not go, um, didn't just it just didn't sit right with me. I feel like it just would have been so much more effective to have had her there. And not only just to had her have had her there, but also to um to have her play a major role. And I think that it just would have been awesome to just have the four of them. You know, fighting Ultima together, like those those last four dominants coming together. Yeah, you would. Um, someone in chat said it would have been four Warriors of Light. 
Wouldn't that have been so cool? <laughs> it would have been a party-based game, sort of. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And it would have been it would have been so thematically appropriate too, because it's yeah. it's kind of like they're they're Fantasy. right. It's Final Fantasy and their connections over you know. Yeah, the friendship and yeah. killing killing god that's what it's all about um <laughs> it, it would have it would have really worked um quite well for me and i also think too that kind of going back on that scene not to go too far off topic too i kind of hate that 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 clive just takes joshua's power you know instead of in the end at the very least you could have had joshua and clive fusing together to at I least know. bring together that that moment of you know, our our bonds can overcome any adversity. But why uh, didn't they do that then? I think. I I'm still struggling to to figure that out, <laughs> it, honestly. Like because there's no Right. It, well it, it just almost feels like they needed Joshua to die for some reason or another. Um and so they couldn't have <laughs> they couldn't have that moment and so they had to have a thing where he takes the Phoenix power from Joshua. But then he had already got the blessing of the Phoenix. I think Mike touched on this in the podcast too. So, you know, there's there's some type of distinguishment here between him like getting the Phoenix, but then how is he still able to transform into Ifrit Risen by himself? But then yeah, right, right, right. Because he can't transform into the other dominance, right? So I feel like I feel like it should have been a requirement that Joshua is there. And honestly, too, what I actually think that the logo for Final Fantasy 16 is is like one of the coolest Final Fantasy logos because it's not just Efreed and Phoenix fighting; it's also them fusing. Yeah, it's mm, them together. together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so right, yeah. and so I think I think that's like an awesome logo because it has like those yeah. really sick double meaning behind it. And you know, where you start the game, you think it means one thing; you finish the game, and it recontextualizes right and really powerful in that sense. So yeah, I'm just I wasn't a very big fan in, at all of just Clive being alone in those final moments because I think I'd like I'd like to call yeah. something out real quick. Yeah. And and yeah. this yeah. is to a person in the comments named Rafael Toledo. Mm. Um th- this is an, an a sentiment that um I struggle to understand. It was shared a little bit even last week where people were upset that we were bashing the game for an hour and a half or something like that. And I saw mm. you say something a little earlier about, you know, oh, facepalm, like they explained what the Iron King was all about. So obviously you're a big fan of the game. That's why we're doing this. We don't usually do these live publicly like this. Yeah. The reason we're doing that is because we want you guys to join the conversation. So instead of facepalming, f- please feel free to give your your two cents on that and I'll read it because if, if, if it's going to clarify something, we want to know that we're not here to bash the game criticism. You, you guys need to understand. Uh, I think, and I think this is especially something the final fantasy community as a whole really needs to grapple with badly. Criticism is not negative. It's not bashing. It can be. If somebody's going to step into Sierra and be like, Oh, this game's piece of shit sucks ass. Blah, blah. Like, obviously that's not, that's not constructive. That's not going to help anybody, you know, particularly mm-hmm. the developers with, okay, we're going to take that feedback into consideration and let's try to do something next time. Yeah. Um, can you copy and paste it then? Cause I didn't see it. So just copy and paste it real quick. But my point right. is you don't have to get upset. 
we're not doing this because we're mad the game wasn't what we wanted it to be. <laughs> we're doing this because we love Final Fantasy. Yeah. And we want to we want to give our two cents and if any of that can be useful to developers cuz according to them they watch conversations like this. Right. Yeah, they, they go on YouTube and they seek it out. So they they invite it. Yeah. So let's give them the most clear, concise and constructive feedback that we can. And if something we've said is is not uh, doesn't make sense, we want to be corrected on that too. Mm. So 100%. please, yeah. please post your feelings on it. Don't just get angry and feel like we're here to hate on something. Because nobody here went into this game with the in, you know, any intention other than to love it. And yeah, right. obviously, especially after that demo, <laughs> yeah, a right? great demo. Yeah, it was fire. I gotta um, give it to him. That yeah. the first couple hours of the game are are quite intriguing. Okay, yeah, and, so while while I, I wait for him to come back with that real quick, yeah. go ahead, Clark. I, I still, I still think this is a good game. I think, I think that mm. um, there are games that have less flaws that I enjoyed less than this. I think a good example oh, is that uh, I think there's, um, I think Ghost of Tsushima is one of the most flawless mm. games ever made. I love my, that game. My gross enjoyment of this game was higher than that game, not mm. because I think. I agree. That you know i just think that there's this you know uh i there's this way that we sort of grade games where we're like it starts at a hundred percent it's it has an a as it's as it's spoken into the world and then each each negative deducts points until it's down to a c or a, a d or an mm. f that is not the way that i experience art this I I really enjoyed my experiences with Final Fantasy 16, and I think even you know voicing my criticisms of them, seeing where things failed, seeing where things could be better, you know, those are all ways that I'm actually still enjoying this 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 intellectual property. I'm still enjoying mm. this piece of art because um, yeah. my gross enjoyment, like I said, of the experience was better than a game that had less flaws. You know, because it's that's it's it's not a paper. You know, it's it's art. Um, and you know, uh, as far as the Iron Kingdom goes, yeah, I I know there's a purpose for it. I think I think Wade's point on the Iron Kingdom, and and I I kind of agree, is that it certainly doesn't really like fit the developer quotes kind of core sentiment. It's this kind of aberrant, like underdeveloped area. That had potential to be this big thing that kind of wasn't. It's visually really impressive, you know. And again, it just kind of brings us to Jill. And and to mm. answer your question about Jill for me personally, ah yes, I, I would have liked to see Jill have a uh, expanded role. I don't necessarily know if that needed to have her go to origin. I was okay with her, like from a structural story standpoint staying behind to defend the hideaway and everything that clive built with torgal and gav and mid and everybody i was i was okay with that from a thematic point of view um i do think that she had a bunch of other missed opportunities to to develop and be part of and you know uh wouldn't be wouldn't be horrible if she was playable in the dlc you know uh, mm. Personally, what do you think? Wade, Playable about the though, thing? this game. Okay, can I cut in real quick? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to cut in real quick just to get back to Raphael because I said I would. 
So right. I think this is mostly just a misunderstanding of the context of the conversation. So he says, Iron Kingdom was extreme piety, rejection of bearers, use of magic at all costs due to the crystals right. being manifestations of the gods and not being used. Uh, that was oh, my original so, post. Oh, so the good aspect of that that Clive then takes is the not using magic or wanting to stop using magic. Well, right? well, maybe, but uh, let me get through the rest of this here. That my that was my original post when everyone was saying they didn't understand the yeah. Iron Kingdom's philosophy. I don't think anyone's saying we don't understand yeah. the Iron Kingdom's I philosophy. I understood that one. <laughs> what yeah. we were saying was in context of the developer quote that I read, right. where they said the core theme of the game is about a bunch of different perspectives from all these different places and what's really right and what's really wrong, um, that there, there aren't many examples that we can find in the game that fulfill that particular vision of the theme. The things that Wade talked about with Mythos and Logos, the things that Clark talked about in the beginning, those things, the, the theological, more the, the, some of the abstract concepts, right, um, kind of are, are what end up being what the game focuses on by the end. And so this is what we're talking about, and specifically mm -hmm. what I'm talking about in terms of technical storytelling. Technical storytelling is all about where do we put the audience, the reader, the gamer, the viewer, their focus in, in this moment to moment, in this paragraph, in this sentence, what am I saying to them and why? In this shot, what am I showing them and why? Those who are masters of their craft don't waste a second a sentence, a word, right? All of those things are pointing at what am I, what is this work trying to say? According to the developer quote, it's trying to say something very different from what these guys talked about at the beginning of this podcast. So I hear what they say and I go, oh, that's a really cool idea. Why did we start the game with our camera focused on Metia? Why are we using this time to establish this thing here when in the end we're really going to turn our focus away from these kingdoms and their perspectives and what's right and wrong and, and bearers even, you know, freeing bearers. And it's, it's more this, uh, you're even saying internal struggle between, um, uh, you know, the, well, you had two terms for it. I'm forgetting them now. The, the narcissist and the, is it the nemesis? Nem nemesis, nemesis and narcissist. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's the myth, that this yeah. is that this is this is a symbol of yeah. the introspective process of that. OK, right. so where was that set up in the opening act of the game? It was. Let's hear it. I want to hear was. that. It was. Oh, it was not is what you're saying. OK, oh, so I so see. this is this is what I'm saying is that when I come to my uh, conclusion on the game, as somebody who values very much technical storytelling finesse, this game I found to be very lacking. But if, if like Wade was saying, you're going into this with a theological lens, you're going into this looking at themes and concepts and symbols, uh, you're going to be doing, you're going you're gonna to talk about Grieger in, in your stream after this today. Is that, is that what you're going over? Not today, but not today. Will. Eventually you will. Yeah. If, if you're looking at those things, Kaysen does a lot of that. In oh yeah. That's right. The most fascinating part of the game was, was Grieger and yeah. also a little disappointing in the way that, um, oh, Grieger ended up not so very relevant, I'd say, I guess. What, what we're coming around to is that none of this is, uh, is hating, right? And, and we, are, we are enjoying ourselves 
<laughs> in having a conversation like this. Th yeah. That's what I'm that's what I'm talking about when I say criticism is not like by default or inherently a negative thing. This is a way for all of us to reflect on our experience, to share and to to grow from that uh, that dialogue between each other, to change opinions, uh, to solidify them, whatever it might be. But that's what art inspires. And yeah. so it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be. That was the 10 out of 10 greatest thing of all time. As Clark alluded to, sometimes the games that have more failings than perfect finesse are more interesting to talk about. Mm. So there's no need to get angry in these conversations and have all the infighting in the community of Final Fantasy. Uh, I, I have very different conclusions about my my thoughts on Final Fantasy VII Remake, for instance, than, than Clark does. I think most people who know the two of us would, would know that we, we couldn't be more opposite in far as our conclusions on that. Mm -hmm. But I we're good <laughs> friends. Yeah, <laughs> It doesn't have to affect anything because yeah. we can uh, have conversations like this and they can be very productive. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yeah. also, also me and Clark, but Clark, yes. Clark, 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 Clark will also tell you though that there is nobody, there is nothing I hate more than when people try to make bad arguments about Final Fantasy VII remake story because mm -hmm. uh, it just it irritates me to no end. Yeah. Like I have criticisms of it, but I think that there is people who just make really baseless criticism. I don't even like when people do it about Final Fantasy XIII, and a lot of people know how I feel about that game because a lot of people will just slap that game with it's too linear. Yeah. And that drives me insane because I'm like, <laughs> linearity, linearity is like, that's such like a bad criticism of that game. So um, I think every, everyone here, you know, not only does criticism come from a place of wanting to see things do better, wanting to see the people do better. You guys know I'm a huge uh, Yoshi P fan uh, yeah. and I would love to see him work on another mainline title. And I, I definitely want him to do better. Um, and I think that he's already done a great job. He made my favorite Final Fantasy story of all time. Final Fantasy fourteen. I, I think a lot yeah. of people who yeah. Um, yeah. are not uh, necessarily super high on my opinions of the series, and yeah. I want to get into the series at large here now, move in that direction a little bit, mm. um, would think would cla would try to characterize me as some kind of Sakaguchi stan or something like that. Like if it's not Sakaguchi, then it's not Final Fantasy. Um, yeah. And I, I can tell you very much, uh, there there's several projects that Sakaguchi has led that I've not been a super huge fan of. I did not All like right. Fantasian. I did yeah. not like Blue Dragon. Um, yeah. uh, even like some of the earlier Final Fantasy games, there's plenty there that I, I would criticize. So um, that's not the point of criticism. It's not about taking sides. And, and we got our 7R tribe versus our, our CBU3 tribe here, I, right? <laughs> that's, that's not, that shouldn't be the point, fellas. Yeah, it's a really I, bizarre factionalization. I, I would like to read something really quick from Dream Bomb in chat. Um, as, oh, is he know, here in the chat? He's, yeah, he's here in the chat. Uh, nice. He says that um, Media representing star-crossed lovers, um, astrologically a star represents fate over people. It dims because the fate is broken, even if it ends in tragedy. And I can, I can, mm. I mean, my response to that would be that, like, I think that's actually a very cool way of looking at it. I guess oh. that that only like my problem would be is that like um, that I guess to be frank from a normie perspective <laughs> going 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 into this um, and with the game so heavily leaning on something like Game of Thrones and trying to be a title with kind of like the widespread appeal 
um, are is is a mainstream audience that wouldn't be as well versed on this going to even be able to pick up on the surface level meaning as well as as someone who is right and so that is that's kind of the challenge i think in writing like these very big budget stories is that yes you do want that philosophical depth to be there but then you also want the story to be told in such a solid way that um, your average person will at least on the surface level be able to be really gripped by it and i think that um you know i i wouldn't have personally picked up on that that would have went way over my head now that you've given me that um i can certainly see some appreciation for it well but i, I for actually me, think that's yeah. pretty similar to what wade was right. saying yeah, yeah. right yeah, yeah, I think I think that was the the, the yeah. bare minimum interpretation. It honestly felt like it should have been more. And and again, I think this is what we we're talking about with you know this outsourced symbolism construct. Like you talked about at the end, at the you know the the main themes, the things that really resonated with Wade and I. Um, what in the first act uh, lets us know that that's what the game is about? Well, ultimately, I do think there is a little bit. I do think that the answer that they give to how do you break the oppression that we see displayed as a background problem to the world system is answered through the final act. But there is still this, this disconnect between the way that say, you know, and I hate to bring up near or even the Xeno games again, but <laughs> those give you these really clear signals. Hey, we are using symbolism that comes from outside of the game's internal lore. And I don't think I don't think that 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 storytelling should pander. I don't think that, you know, it should uh, treat its treat its audiences not intelligent, but there is there is at least a bare minimum expectation to give us a symbol within the game to let us know to look outside if that's where we need to look. Yeah. And I think other games have done that a little better. Uh, but I do think that once you know, like if you happen to be in the specific position that Wade and I are in, this is a really great ending. Wade, I you think know? you've had something you've wanted to say there. I've, I've seen you itching. One of the things that I, I keep coming back to is there seems to have been a shift in Square Enix's philosophy over the last uh, few iterations of Final Fantasy. Um, 16, uh, 15 to a degree, certainly 13, um, and I would argue 12 as well, began to take on these, um, these elements of ambiguity for the purpose. And I think you guys mentioned this on your last um, episode. They wanted to... Um, create fodder for discussion and so they're not giving all of the answers the specifics some things are happening off screen or inferred or what do you think really happened there when i'm approaching this game and, and a lot of um new square enix games um i i i tend not to think that any of them are incomplete but instead they're intentional Right now, sometimes maybe they've dropped things on the editing floor. I think that uh, Final Fantasy XV, particularly the beginning, uh, it turning out to be a movie at Kingsglaive, that was certainly a, a, an editing choice or whatever. But when it comes to these 
pieces of art. Why did they do the things they did? Now, my criticisms can be, man, I wish there was fishing in this game. There's beautiful water <laughs> in the desert, right? Like we, we could have really done some stuff. Why did they put in um, chocobo drift mechanics if you're not going to do anything with chocobos, right? That's mm, like one of like the- Like any racing or anything. <laughs> but yeah. That is mind-blowing. But the game that they gave us was intentional. So- does it work, A, and and B, why did they do that? Why why narratively? And so it's the difference between criticizing a game because it's not my expectation of what it is and criticizing it based on what it tried to be, mm-hmm. um, I guess. And so that kind of going back a, a few conversations to the basis of where I'm going to critique. From a fundamental level in this game, I feel like almost everything in it works. Um, and you get a cohesive story beginning to end, like we've said, but some of the things are peculiar. Um, they, they do seem to set up some things like party basis and dynamics. When uh, Dion and um, it, it's in the uh, just before they go to the final Mother Crystal, when Dion and Jill and others come in and rush and save the day, it's like we're finally going to get a party and let's all like fight together. Why didn't they do that? Well, kind of the, the answer would, I, I would be interested in what the developers were really going for there. Cause like my expectation was finally, Final Fantasy, Warriors of Light, let's go. Um, but because they subvert that expectation, like what is the payoff there? And I mean, I think part of yeah. the answer is because you're at hour 70 in the game. Ah, you're right. <laughs> It doesn't mean it'll take longer, though, just to have more people be there at the end. Here's another question, similar to the Chocobo Drift. Why do you play as Joshua in the prologue? And no other time are you playing as in anybody else. Like, icons for like a good one solid minute a piece. You even get Um. to control, you even get to press a button for for Bahamut twice. (laughs) Yeah. Great. I, I actually think too that playing as young Joshua and then having that contrast of playing as the older version of him uh, would have been really fascinating, right? Yeah. To see how his character has grown and strengthened his master, uh, mastering his abilities too, right? Because you remember he, he can cast some really powerful spells like Faraga and Kiraga, but, but then as soon as he does, he's like, <laughs> you know, he's completely Double tired, over, yeah. right? Yeah. And so. It's just it's just hard because there is multiple times in this game where a lot of the story beats are are pretty good, but then it would have just been enhanced so much more by being able to play as that character mm. and have that moment um, from their perspective. Yeah. Like um, someone well, says, particularly fact, if if the yeah. if the idea here is to jump between all these different points of view and have like a real struggle between like okay, what's right. I mean, mm. was there any point where I, we thought, oh, wait a minute, is Benedicta right and Clive wrong? Like, did, did anyone actually ask, ask themselves Or, or that Barnabas or, or, or Ultima? No, yeah, never. Now, now, would you have, had you been able to, like you're saying, actually jump into their perspective, like be that character from this point mm. in time? You know what I mean? Yeah. But, right. but that being said, there was a point where I thought Clive was wrong. That's true. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the whole Klein Rand moment. Uh, yeah. I do mm. want to know what what everybody here thought of that, by the way, um, by uh, Clive's what hard stance on a super like radical individualism, like objectivism. Anybody want to weigh in? That hold on before we go there, Ryan, you were going to say something about a comment, weren't you? 
Oh, um, someone had mentioned, uh, to my point, that j controlling Jill in the Iron Kingdom would have oh, been, would have been a great. really, yes. yeah, it would yes. a really great moment 100%. to have really seen things in her perspective. And I thought that was a pretty decent moment for her character, but it would have elevated it quite a lot if you were really seeing that from her perspective. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now onto the Klein rant. Anybody who watched our podcast, you can disagree with me. I'm just saying has... it, this is one of those moments where their theme, their themes didn't line up. Um, I, 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 it was just it was such a weird, bizarre like meta commentary when Joshua almost like takes on the mantle of the player and punches Clive. You're like, yeah. That's yeah right. uh okay so there's some self-awareness here and it's interesting right. and i do think that there's a chance and that's you know and i thought about that a lot and still don't know if maybe i'm missing something mm. like i i still do think there's a chance that yeah. that there was an in intent behind that that i i didn't i didn't connect with and i always do like to try and meet the artists where they're at and try and figure out what their yeah. intent was That's and smart, before yeah. i really really gauge whether something worked or not um there i can criticize them for not conveying that well enough that i understood it um but i also don't like when stories do that i don't i don't like stories that pander to me um so i'll probably read the ultimania before i i uh which comes out tomorrow right which comes out oh tomorrow. really oh <laughs> shoot we're ending our podcast one day before <laughs> before they yeah, <laughs> yeah actually yeah, great, right? great timing <laughs> yeah mm. okay before we find out that media was just fifty thousand layers of deep that we yeah, were right. down. Yeah. Uh, subtext yeah. you guys all missed it when right over yeah. um <laughs> there's as far as klein rand goes that's just to me a way that the themes of the game start to conflict and and there may have not been some perfect cohesion in terms of the thematic material where it's like uh, i don't know if they thought it through necessarily especially in those moments i think um, i think if you wrote the story in a novel it would uh, you it mentioned would... that at the beginning and i think you're probably right i've been I thinking th about that yeah this whole for the past two hours now and i'm thinking like i think there's something to that that if this yeah. were a novel you wouldn't have the whole oh it should have been a party dynamic right like yeah if it were a novel they could it would have read similarly to if you turned in ff6 into a novel mm -hmm. yeah yeah okay there's two things i want to do before we close out since we're already to 742 now do you um, want to ask Wade why his parents didn't name him Wedge? <laughs> I, Should have been and Wedge. Here's the other, the other one. Wedge. Wade. Should have been Wedge. Uh, listen, you I'm just on that. I, I, I did after after this game came out. I was like, did you ever consider naming See? me Wedge? Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're the probably the only person who was happy that his name was Wade. I was so happy, like I, I screamed. I like I was like, ah, it's yeah. me. <laughs> okay, okay, Mike. Continue. So the two things I want to do, first of all, I want to go around real quick and just have everyone talk about what their favorite thing about the game was mm -hmm. to sort of just like balance out this sort of lull we've been in. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to move into one final thing kind of unrelated to FF16 and more to the series as a whole. So who wants to start? I think I can start. Okay. Um, I love that this game was M-rated. And I love that it did not put them in a position where they had to cut or modify certain things 
in order to meet, let's be honest, Ciro, the Japanese rating board, in order to meet their very strict um, rating system, which is a big part of why the blood trail in Final Fantasy VII Remake had to be altered because they wanted that, that teen rating. And you cannot have pools of blood. Now, some people will point to things like like intermission where, you know, Yuffie has like, you know, blood on her. You can have like little splotches of blood, but you can't have pools of blood. The reason you can't have pools of blood is because pools of blood is thought of as gore. Mm. And so when you do that, it instantly becomes a mature rated game there. And so uh, this even affects Resident Evil. I don't know if you guys know this, but there is uh, Resident Evil is actually censored in Japan if you buy the retail version. Um, you actually have to go online and buy the Z version. That's like the zero rating. Uh, the Z version, yeah, that's that's uncensored. You can only buy it online because they can't sell it in stores because it's basically like the um, the ESRB equivalent of the um, adults only rating. Right, but we we just get we just get the un yeah. yeah we just get the yeah. the um the completely uncensored version here in the U.S. So you know, Ciro wow. is really strict. I think going for the M rating was really good. I also think that this game probably handles um, nudity and sexuality in the most mature way that I've seen any JRPG handle those things, and I think it was a huge huge step forward i think um i think that there wasn't any like you know there's there's like a lot of tropes about you know the protagonist you know being like oh my god you know i'm seeing the girl like doing it oops doing it i slipped yeah. on yeah. top of you <laughs> yeah. oh no it's so yeah. embarrassing yeah yeah the blush <laughs> those, those types yeah. of tropes uh i mean you know i don't know how many people i i speak for but um it's it's so unfortunate, you know, to see those tropes being used so many times because, you know, I personally don't care for them much. Mm. In this game, I feel like it was handled mature and it was handled like it was written, you know, by an adult for adults. And I really want to see more of that. Um, I think that that was something that I want more from the franchise um, is just handling things in that M rating with that maturity not being not having to shy away from things and i think the delivery of it was quite good in that in this game and it actually used that m rating pretty effectively nice i agree with basically everything you just said that's great mm, yeah how about you clark um i think uh i think the uh i think if we're to pick one thing I'm just going to say Dion in general. Dion is Ooh. the best answer there is. <laughs> yes. Dion, Dion Sanders, new head coach of the CU <laughs> Buffaloes. Taking <laughs> <laughs> waves. It's a, yeah. Um, I, I, I thought the representation was really uh, good. It was uh, important. It was uh, really avoided a lot of annoying uh, tropes. And I even think that... Um, I, people were upset that uh, that that you know he died at the end or he sacrificed himself. But I, right. uh, to me, that was really uh, that was important. That's that's that kind of self sacrifice uh, is is an honor generally, uh, particularly in Japanese culture, reserved for 
straight cishet men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought that that was a, it was a unique honor. Uh, and then just the, uh, the, the, the just, uh, complex, like his, his scene with Harpocrates, um, I, it was just it was so tastefully written i think some of the best writing of like a single small you know scenario like side quest chain uh comes there and then you know all the little details that got called up like during the during the bahamut fight like the stage mm. uh you know expanding into that flower was really uh dramatic and then um also, you know, there is just this little kid in me that remembers Final Fantasy and, and wanting to, uh, you know, uh, fight dragons and, and kaiju fights and uh, going to space to fight to fight Bahamut as Ifrit Ascended was just beat for me. I just love the spectacle. Mm. You know, I, I really, I thought the, the whole thing was good. Um, and then I know you only gave me one, but number two is the um, voice performances absolutely carried a lot of the characterizations and probably for sure. did a lot of the writer's works for them. So For sure. How fair, you got two. Got both of them. All right, Wade. What, you, yeah, what was what, your favorite? What's left? The they, took, they took it. <laughs> uh, um, the more that I've thought about this game, the more I realize, for me at least, it is the realization um, of all of the things that I loved about Final Fantasy up to this point. Um, And so I I actually made a post on Twitter a couple of days ago that was like completely ratioed, but it was the (laughs) idea that um, 16 gives us what Square Enix and the developers always wanted us to have, like Cecil's moment of facing the shadow self. Clive gets that. And it's like, what if that was fully acted? And what if it was cinematic and in this moment of, uh, of redemption? Um, it, it gives us these amazing morphs like Terra in um, Final Fantasy VI uh, into an Esper. Um, it, it gives us a love story that's fully acted, and, and not only that, but like it's a grown-up love story. I was I was describing with somebody, um, Squall and Renoa have a puppy love, teenage uh, love story, but Clive and Jill have a thirty-something love story, and mm-hmm. and like when you're when you're older, mm-hmm. it's like gosh, this is real and grounded, and it's it, it was deeply deeply powerful to me um the music the immersion all of it came together and, and by the end i was like this was a, a, an iteration of final fantasy that usurped uh, or, uh it, it um kind of countered expectations in a lot of ways and yet it fulfilled them um in, in what a final fantasy truly is so for me that was it it felt final fantasy through and through and it was more than just crystals and chocobos mm-hmm Mm. How about you, Kason? What was your favorite part of the game? In Kupka and <laughs> Bahamut. The, those specifically, those icon fights were um, an absolute blast. They were, yeah. mm-hmm. they were very fun. That's probably what mm. uh, made the game enjoyable for me. Uh, you did you did you you didn't think it was over the top? The uh, fist punching. As fast I as did. <laughs> I did think it was over the top. I in a good it. way, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't yes. mind that at all. Um, yeah, I didn't mind it at all. Okay. Um, let's see. Clark basically took the the one I was going to do, but if I'm going to um, pick another instead, uh, I actually the one thing I liked as a sort of subversion from sort of the typical. 
uh, Final Fantasy sort of setup for crystals, right? The fact that the crystals needed to be destroyed, the crystals were the source of the of the blight and magic and, you know, um, the fact that the crystals, I guess that was hinted right from the very beginning, the crystals, the legacy of the crystals, right? Uh, what, what was the exact wording on that? Has has governed us from far too long, or something like that? Has has r- uh, ran a legacy of the crystals has uh... something our fate for far too yeah. long. Anyway, <laughs> no, governed our fate, governed our fate, something like that, right? Uh, um, you know, since the very beginning, the crystals uh, in the series have already always sort of represented like, oh, they're dying, we have to restore them, and this was literally a total table flip on that concept. And I thought that was a really cool way to integrate them uh, as a you know common sort of like tying it to the legacy of the series, but doing it in a way that was shaped our history. Thank you, Duma guy. Um, do, kind of doing a different turn on it. The, the crystals are evil this time, right? <laughs> um, so yeah. I, I kind of liked that uh, as like a little bit of a twist on the, the common Final Fantasy story that features crystals, which are, oh no, they've shattered. Oh no, they've been corrupted. The wind is stopped. You know, the, right. the world balance is thrown out. We need to go restore the light of the crystals. This was the reverse of that. I kind of liked that aspect. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Last thing. Oh, Sid is a great answer from Prem. Sid's a really good character too. Best Sid's Sid. probably my second favorite character in the game mm. after Dion. D- he was my favorite. And then like it started, game started focusing on Dion a little more. I was like, mm-hmm. okay, Dion's my favorite character. Mm. Last thing that I want to discuss I feel like we could sit here forever. I really do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. I'm going to have to say, trust me, bro, that what I'm about to tell you is not a trust me, bro situation. I have the quotes, but we just don't have the time for me to scan through 17 pages to find. Them. <laughs> there are two specific quotes that I found in doing the dev history on this game, researching about it, that stuck out to me as like the thing I could not ignore, like the thing that'll be burned into my brain and I will never forget in terms of all this stuff I read. One, it was, and I just had it here. Who is, who is the director of the game? Not the producer, but the director. Hiroshi Takai. Hiroshi Takai. He's a big God of War fan. He, he uh, does not shy away from this. Yeah. His interviews. (laughs) He talks about how basically, like, I can't lie, I was very inspired by God of War uh, when I made this game. He talks about how he imported the game into Japan to get it earlier because he just couldn't wait for God of War back on the PS2, right? So he loves God of War. And he says that God of War's influence was pretty large in terms of the way he approached constructing this game, right? Like the development, uh, the design philosophy behind, particularly like, hub area versus like you know anyway i won't get into the whole quote but that's uh, the main point is there he really looked to god of war for inspiration on final fantasy 16. of course we know they brought in uh battle suzuki battle designer from capcom who had worked on games like monster hunter dragon's dogma and devil may cry 5 so you see some of those influences heavily i think in the combat system which was a huge deviation from past iterations of final fantasy combat lastly and the one that stuck out to me the most, there's a quote from Yoshida saying that when they, because this game started development right, right right before Final Fantasy 15 release. So we're talking, which oh is 2016, 2015, maybe even something yeah. like that, right? A while ago. 
So this is right in the midst of Game of Thrones being at its height of popularity, probably around season four era. And he bought the boxed sets, made everybody sit down in the office and watch that and said, this is the kind of fantasy that people really like right now. We need to write a story like this. So <clears throat> that hurt me to read. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> um, because it, it, it was once true as I was growing up that the Final Fantasy series was a trend-setting series. It, alongside everyone Dragon followed. Quest, everyone, it, Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest created this whole subgenre we now call JRPGs. They were the ones that's, that made that what it is, mm -hmm. right? And they set the trends. And now we have developers going out of their way to make the series feel more like other popular things, whether it's the storytelling, whether it's the game design philosophy. Now, I watched a video from Wade, I want to say maybe like a month or two ago, where you talked about the discourse surrounding Final Fantasy. What is Final Fantasy? Right? I'm sure we've all had this argument for probably over a decade now with people yeah. online. <laughs> yeah. And what I came away from after reading that was, was I'm not even saying this as somebody who uh, is, is a fan or, oh, I'm upset about the way the series, I'm not speaking from that place. I'm very much detached from that now. I've, I've kind of let that go. Uh, I work in marketing and uh, I, I've studied a lot about current sort of like philosophy on brand strategy and, and how to create consistent brands. And my conclusion after watching the last 10 years or so, when did Final Fantasy 13 come out? 2010? 2010, 2010 a, in the US. Maybe a little longer than that. Probably uh, more like 15, 20 years. I have seen this brand, the Final Fantasy brand, have identity crisis after identity crisis. Uh, nobody agrees on what it should be because everybody is a fan of a different project and that's the one they like and that's the one they think it should be. <laughs> and mm -hmm. they're being headed by different teams and different creators with totally different philosophies on how it should be moved forward and how they should solve this problem. There's a quote at the beginning of my notes here that says there's so much pressure with being the lead designer, the creative director of a final mainline Final Fantasy project, Yoshida talks about. And I think that that pressure is entirely self-made by the corporate decisions of Square Enix and the fact that they have what seems to be zero idea, zero vision. What is Final Fantasy? Ryan made a video saying, I don't care what it is as long as they pick it and they do that next time and iterate on it moving forward. So you've done a video on that kind of already. I kind of got your thoughts mm. on that. But it, it seems to me that with all the infighting, we're all here have seen this. We, we, we were on Twitter or X or whatever the hell it's called now. And <laughs> we see the people fighting about it. We see the people in our comments session fighting about it. It's in a really, I would be, I would be scared if I was a brand manager of Final Fantasy. Like it's a mess in my opinion. So, I don't think, I don't think that job exists, but <laughs> probably not. Well, I guess, I think it's supposed to be Katase, but anyway. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. Now he just recently got the job. 
Oh, okay. So, my I guess where I'm going with this is I would like to get everybody's thoughts first on what is it that you value about Final Fantasy? What is it at the core that you look for when you play a Final Fantasy game? What is that to you? I think, Wade, you just touched on some things that you felt existed here in this game that you know, referential to the series legacy and that sort of thing. Um, is there is there an identity in your mind or maybe not, maybe not even that. Let's not go there. Let's not try to pronounce what the identity is. Let's just talk about what we value or valued about it the most. Um, Kason, you go first. We haven't done you first in ever in this whole time. Ever. Never. Never <laughs> happens. Um, yeah, what I value most about Final Fantasy, um, I mean, it's not the final. I value the fantasy better than the final. <laughs> oh. That's about it. Uh, I don't know what to say. It's all about turn base. It's all about the medieval fantasy stuff. Um, I I don't mind. But you love yeah. seven, and that wasn't medieval, so maybe I that's loved not it. Seven a lot. Um, Good choice. I I don't know that I'm necessarily prepared to like to answer the question. Answer exactly what it is. Um, but what I what I love about it is that it tends to be story focused, and that it does tend to have a, a really a really interesting blend of of the you know typical medieval fantasy elements along with maybe you know more modern type elements you know um i find that really intriguing um but i don't know that i can necessarily pin it down so i would not be a good brand manager now i i have other ideas about like what necessarily the spirit of final fantasy is um but yeah i don't know that i can necessarily pin it down especially not now after everything that they've done okay Let's move to Wade. Um, I, I don't want to rehash my entire video on this. What I will say is for the more that I've thought about Final Fantasy, every iteration is a deeply human story of resistance and rebellion against some struggle or, like I said in my video, a cycle that is unending. Now, you could argue all kinds of stories and JRPGs particularly are about ending some kind of cycle. But the way that Final Fantasy does it is through a commitment to immersion um, in that story. It's a commitment to um, some of the properties that it has. You know, these these kind of core properties of chocobos or moogles and, and their aesthetic. But ultimately, their number one commitment is not to gameplay or... Um, any specific mode, it is to that story. So they're looking at the landscape, whether that is Call of Duty or Game of Thrones or whatever. And they're saying, how can we tell the greatest story that speaks to the human spirit, um, given technology, music, and current um, trends? To me, that is what differentiates Final Fantasy from every other franchise. Not to say that they aren't good. In fact, with uh, Baldur's Gate three's uh, popularity i would imagine that final fantasy 18 will probably be that not 17 because they probably worked on that two years <laughs> they ago. already started it <laughs> yeah but, I, I mean that that's it they're constantly trying to tell really the same story with a whole new veneer um using um new characters and technology and all that to me it's the heart of it the story okay how about you uh clark uh let ryan go first on this one all right ryan go for it so to some degree, um, I might actually disagree that Final Fantasy hasn't in some ways string chased 
before. I just think that they've always presented it in their own way that was so unique and compelling and had its own style that that became the trend. Because if you go back to Final Fantasy 1, I mean, it was heavily influenced by Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, if you can call anything the progenitor RPG, it's Dungeons and Dragons, for sure. And you look at well, Final Ultima, Fantasy 1. Ultima yeah. and um, you know, those yeah. PC RPGs that Sakaguchi played, Wizardry, things like that. Right, right, right. And those were, you know, hugely influenced. And those also have their roots in D&D as well. And I mean, even looking at FF1's uh, Bestiary, half of the a good chunk of those enemies come straight out of D&D. the mind flayers and it's in final fantasy one right and yeah. i think if you if you actually look at um what D is all about you know kind of using your imagination and you know connections with people to go on this as large as your imagination journey is i think that is also quintessentially what Final Fantasy is. And Final Fantasy is its own brand and interpretation and its own style of approaching what is fundamental to the role-playing game, is going on something, you know, Saka, going on that adventure that pushes to the, the absolute limits. And Sakaguchi recently said, I believe it was in the 35th anniversary, um, like, kind of discussion video that they did, uh, regarding the pixel remasters. And he said one thing that he liked about the name Final Fantasy was that you could also read it like Ultimate Illusion, mm. right? And so it was something that um, went on the absolute, you know, U edge. Ultimate Mythos? Yeah, Ultimate <laughs> Mythos. Ultimate <laughs> Mythos, right? Yeah, and so it goes to that very edge of your imagination, right? And stretches your imagination. And what I think Final Fantasy has done to set those trends is create types of stories and settings and aesthetics and do those things in such ways that you almost can't even look uh, at other JRPGs without finding that inspiration about where they would go to find something that's visually unique, um, the, the types of settings that they would find. I mean, like, just take like Final Fantasy VIII, for example, right? Like before Final Fantasy VIII came out, you really couldn't find anything else that looked like that or that had that type of setting or um, anything else like that. And so Final Fantasy would always push, you know, that kind of like D&D concept in ways that a lot of people wouldn't have really imagined, right? Even kind of like with Final Fantasy X, where Kitase said, well, you know, when people think about fantasy, they think about, you know, kind of medieval Europe, which is kind of ironic too uh to think about now but he said that you know i wanted to take this to uh maybe a more asian pacific islander setting rather than the types of european settings that people think of fantasy and so yeah. i think you know of, maybe that's yeah. what i feel like some a game like yeah. Final Fantasy 16 is is missing there's i don't i don't i don't recall seeing a bunch of japanese influence stuff in 16 but yeah. i have been able to and basically because well, it was trying to game. be like game of thrones Yes, but but yeah. if if you're gonna say something about Final Fantasy, something that's integral to Final Fantasy is being that cross of the cultures, the communion right. of the cultures of the West and the East, kind of. Yeah. Um, I nope. feel like sixteen might have been missing that quite a bit. I I think that sixteen did have that. Uh, someone mm -hmm. in the chat saying kaiju fights. I do think that that sixteen did have. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Good point. I, I, <laughs> I I do I do think I do think that sixteen did have 
the the Japanese influence. And to my point, that's not necessarily what I'm what I'm talking about. Um, I, I think that it's it's really just more about pushing that boundary. And I'm not saying that medieval setting is is like bad or anything like that. Um, by any means, I think that there is just really interesting ways that Final Fantasy tends to interpret things that that and that's what makes it interesting, right? Mm -hmm. And 14 also does that too with a lot of its, you know, like 14 setting never like, you know, the setting in kind of like Arom Reborn wasn't necessarily instantly appealing to me, but a lot of the settings that were introduced in like Stormblood and uh, Shadowbringers and Inwalker, that's when I really started to be like, wow, I really love. Um, Final Fantasy XIV setting, uh, there is a particular city, I don't want to spoil it for too many people, but there is a particular city in Shadowbringers, uh, the last major city that you visit in Shadowbringers before the final boss. Uh, that was just like one of the most Final Fantasy moments ever. So Final Fantasy to me, I guess put simply, is uh, stretching the imagination of the core principle of what role-playing games are. Taking place in places and worlds that have never been seen before or if they have been seen before like you know medieval settings uh the interpretation of them is so fascinating and so different from anything else that you've ever seen and i think it's within that space that final fantasy has really set trends and has been so influential even in terms of fashion stuff like fashion like how you know like um a lot of Nomura's designs have, have influenced uh, JRPG aesthetics because they, you look at the character designs and the character designs are like nothing you could see. So Final Fantasy is all about this being as out there as possible while still retaining that core sort of Dungeons Dragon role-playing philosophy. Mm. Interesting. Okay, so a good a good things you brought up there, and I saw that one in the chat too, bringing up... Uh, uh, what about the trend chasing with Dungeons and Dragons? Also, Ultima and Wizardry. Um, mm. I, I'd like to uh, kind of pivot off, not pivot off, but pivot from that point and into another perspective on that. I mm. think that's where it started for sure. Like, yeah, there's there's no there's no denying that like the first, maybe even second Final mm. Fantasy were uh, these guys who were young really young in their 20s just out of college or having quit college to come work at this little startup game company trying to make something cool and were largely kind of you know borrowing from uh war simulation games they grew up with dungeons and dragons and tabletop stuff and then uh crpgs mm. like uh, wizardry and ultima however i think right around the time of the third game uh is when final fantasies spirit like its own identity really began to take shape yeah, right. it was and, and and from there forward up to a certain point i think when i th when i think about again like consistency within a brand or what makes a thing what it is um i think one of the the better analogies you can use is uh, is a foundation or, or or a frame for a home right um, there's a lot of things people point to. In fact, there was another Yoshida quote where he said something like, Final Fantasy is the best story, the best graphics, the best gameplay, <laughs> something like this. And then, oh, of course, Chocobos and Moogles. And my thought on that is, well, I mean, 
it, maybe it's it, maybe it's an attempt to dodge the question a little bit because it's unanswerable. But and, and maybe he's just kind of you know having fun with it. But uh, I, I just feel like that's that's so vague because I mean every game is trying to have the best story and the best gameplay it can possibly have <laughs> and the best graphical presentation it, it can go for, right? So, like, are we talking about a war simulation game? Are we talking about a shooter? Are we talking about a life sim or like a farm sim? Are we talking about an RPG? Like, that can apply to all of those things. Right. And then, yeah. of course, what a lot of people point to, which is what I would equate to window dressing, chocobos and moogles, um, job these specific job classes, they look like this. You know, the the sprites, yeah. the sprites sort of set the the stage for that for for FF three, and and going back to the the house analogy, like it, it's almost like saying these two houses are painted the same color and they have the same decor inside, so it's the same house, right? Like I, what I rarely see are people talking about the blueprint talking about the foundation, talking about the framing of the thing, right? And it seems really clear to me, in fact, if anybody hasn't seen our FF8 podcast, this is where my thoughts on this really started to come together. Uh, FF8 was, head, was headed up by Yoshinori Kitase. Hironobu Sakaguchi, the creative series, had really no creative hand in the creation of that game whatsoever. This was bred from, and I've, I've got the magazine right over here where this interview came from. I, it, was, it was literally so blatant and so out of character for the interviews that I've read from these guys mostly, where they really talk about how, uh, how, how great the collaborative process was. They rarely talk about disagreements. <laughs> um, but Sakaguchi and Katase are pretty blunt on their disagreement on how Final Fantasy VIII shaped up. Yeah, specifically that one. Yeah. Like Kitase really wanted to present the characters as um, proportioned, realistic. Um, you know, you know something more in the in, in the vein of like pushing the hardware towards more realism. And Sakaguchi was adamant about uh, little squash deformed <laughs> chibi dudes. He's like, is this really? You really think this is the best move? But there's another great interview with. Um, Satori Iwata in one of his Iwata Asks interviews. Uh, and Tetsuya Takahashi was on there too because they were talking about the release of the first Xenoblade in uh, the last story at the time that those games were coming out. And what Sakaguchi said there was that he, he got this sense around the time of Final Fantasy VII's development that a lot of his junior developers were eager, really, really eager to do their own thing. They were tired of fulfilling his vision of Final Fantasy every single game. They We're wanted to do their of, own thing. Of giving up their own will. Yes. <laughs> somebody else's will. Yes. <laughs> yeah, are we starting to see where this theme started to be like the thing <laughs> for good. every Final Fantasy? Okay. Um, and so Tetsuya Takahashi, I mean, brilliant. Obviously, he goes to make Xenogears. Freaking sweet game. I love that. He pitched that originally as a Final Fantasy VII, by the way, and it got right. rejected. Katase goes on to make FF8. Sakaguchi goes on to make FF9 with a different team over here in like Hawaii. And then they've got uh, Hiromichi Tanaka over here working on 11. And then Katase goes on. They, they started branching into teams. And we start seeing different blueprints 
different um, there's frames. There's also uh, Tactics, right? And the, Final and Fantasy Tactics with, uh, with uh, Matsuno, right? Yeah. yeah, a whole other side of it. Different yeah. blueprint, different foundation, different frame, different house is what I'm coming to here, right? And, and this is where I think the confusion starts to come in because you have somebody who comes in on, say, Final Fantasy VII, and I think you can really see some of the similarities to FF6 and FF7 and FF5. But like the, the further we go on, that, that frame and that foundation really begins to change in, in, in a very fundamental way. It, it's becoming a different video game genre over time from the point where we are a Dungeons and Dragons inspired turn-based RPG over here to we are an action game over here. 30 whatever years we are later right yeah i'm not saying anything about whether that's a good or a bad thing this is just my observation i would love to get some feedback on this um i think what i'm really driving at here is that along the lines of what ryan talked about in his video um if if we're going to get any sort of uh clarity if we're going to have this brand come into a place where people know what to expect from it and that we can get rid of this tribal infighting and people like, uh, we've got to pick a foundation and a frame and continue to iterate on that. Because as much as, the, here are the two things that I really noticed ever changed in the classic Final Fantasy games. The setting, and they played and experimented with character progression. So how does the character level up? Combat was virtually the same, except they threw an ATB system in there for five games or something like that. Uh, exploring the world, virtually the same. Like you're saying, Wade, a lot of the the, the story's uh, sort of baseline structure was more or less the same thing. Mm -hmm. There were so many things that kept them together as like, this is the same franchise. So how do you think, I'm now turning this back over to you guys, how does that become unified again? And what do you think is the best frame and foundation to pick moving forward? Or do you think, I like that we get into a different house every time. I think that's totally cool. I think a brand can be built on, we change our frame, we change our blueprint every time. Well, to answer your, the first question, um, I think the identity problem that Final Fantasy is having right now is that people expect Final Fantasy to be good. <laughs> and that's the that's the issue. I don't think that there's any issue with uh, what it references. I mean, the most Game of Thrones part of Final Fantasy 16 was the demo. And that mm. is the most universally praised element of the game. It's sure. refer it can be referential. It just has to be good. I don't mind I think that they that's took... a very that's a great point. Like, I don't we think... wouldn't be having this discussion if if, absolutely they, if the games not. were good. Absolutely not. It, we wouldn't we wouldn't care that it's an action RPG. Definitely we wouldn't no care point. that Suzuki was involved if it weren't like yeah. the issue with me for the game parts. Can I cut in really Suzuki. really quick? Can I yeah. cut in really really quick? Because and I'm not going to like counter this point right now because we're out of time. It's way too late. Maybe you and I can talk about this later. Yeah. But I, I find it strange that I don't know if any other franchise except Final Fantasy, you could make that claim. Like if you turned, 
Halo <laughs> into a, like a freaking RPG and called it Halo Seven. Uh huh. Would that be accepted by anybody? Why I mean, is Halo it? Wars was accepted. Halo Wars. Right. No, no, but that's not a mainline entry. That wasn't Halo yeah. Seven. That wasn't Halo Six. Mm. That was Halo Wars. It was a spinoff. If we yeah. if we called if we called Final Fantasy Sixteen Final Fantasy or, or what they did with uh, Paradise, Straight whatever the Paradise, Ranger, Paradise, yeah, right. It, it's it's considered a spinoff. It's not considered mm-hmm. Final Fantasy Sixteen. Yeah. So if they if they made Halo Seven a, a, a freaking like turn based RPG, I think people would, I I would think rightly, be confused and disappointed in that. Like, why are you swapping our framework here? So why is it with Final Fantasy that we we can have this argument and it seems like a a, a legitimate thing to be able to even mm. argue? But it, that doesn't because exist anywhere else. Because its identity was already tenuous. Like, its identity has always been tenuous enough and always a moving target that we could get far enough away from... Like, I, I firmly believe that if you were to compare 1 to 7, they are as dissimilar as 7 is to, say, 16. I don't think you know? that's true. And And that's fine. And that's fine. I think you could go even further... The thing that I think Final Fantasy evokes is quality. And I, I really do think that, hey, the creators of Final Fantasy want to make something really good. If it's really good, nobody is going to question the epistemology of Final Fantasy. Nobody is going to question the identity. The identity that they're searching for isn't the expectation that it fits within this brand. They want a good experience. And I think that's that's adequate. I think I think what we ended up getting here compared to say and and this is again something where we would probably dis- disagree on i think 7r is a good example of uh something that really did do most of the things it was trying to do so well and get heavily deviant from its source material that nobody's confused about what that is you know nobody's confused that it's final fantasy and let, let me cut in with one more analogy okay. because I like where you're going with this. Yeah. And then I swear I'm going to shut up for the rest of this podcast. <laughs> um, so you're saying as long as it's good, right? Like that's all people really care about. What would you say your favorite restaurant in the world is? What, what's your favorite place to go eat? If you have one or I don't know, pick two. I don't care. Just what's your favorite place to eat? Uh, the OG is Italian restaurant. Okay. And what's your favorite dish? At OG's. Uh, they have a chicken carbonara. Chicken carbonara. Okay. Let's say... I mean, I'm sure they have a lot of other great stuff there, right? Do, do, you, do you tend to... Are you the kind of person that I go and I try different stuff every time or do you stick to your thing? It's like, I like this. I'm going to go get that dish. That's what I like. Uh, I, 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 I go for different stuff. I usually try something new every time. Okay. So you, you try a different dish every time you go there. You never re- kind of return Within, the same stuff. No, I'll return if I have dietary restrictions or okay. something like that. Okay, so this is a good distinction in personality too because there are, I, I know a lot of people who are that way. It's like, I'm going to try something different every time I go. And then they're always disappointed. Why didn't I get that thing? I know I like. And I'm always <laughs> like, just stick what you like. Um, but the analogy where I'm going with this is, let's say your restaurant with your favorite dish takes that dish off the menu and they replace it with, I don't know, this is an Italian restaurant, let's say they replace it with, uh, say they replace it with like a bean burrito or something like that. Uh-huh. Something outside of the scope of what that restaurant's identity is, right? And we say, oh, that's a really, really good bean burrito. You guys are going to love it. It's so good. Uh-huh. Like, as far as bean burritos go, 
Like, bro, this one's awesome. It's like, uh-huh. that's fantastic. I liked, what was the dish that you liked? The chicken? Carbonara. Carbonara, yeah. Carbonara. I want that dish, man. I liked the way you guys made that. The dish, the, the restaurant next door, they have one, but it's not the same. <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to get that one again. I want that one. Why can't you guys make that? And they said, no, don't, no, 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 no. This bean burrito is great. Uh-huh. <laughs> so my counter to the point is, is it always just that it needs to be good? Or is there, is there something more to it? Is there, is there, it, it, I, I think I would be totally fine with what you're saying if Square Enix was still making a game with a framework like I'm talking about. Um, but they I don't. I think there's enough in common, though. I think what you're saying is that um, you're, you're trying to say that, that so much has fundamentally changed that it's now a burrito instead of, say, like, I don't know, a different protein. You know, it's, yes, it's, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, I, and, I think 16 is so different from FF1 through 9, let's call it, that yeah, it's a different dish there, entirely. May I, think may, I, may I chime in? There's common I just, ancestry. I, I, wanted, I just want to chime Go ahead. In Go ahead. Because I ahead. think I could add something to the conversation really quickly. Yeah. Okay. I, think, I think there is a condition in which you order something from your favorite restaurant your favorite dish and you get something else and that is when they bring you something else and it's better than the thing that you thought was your favorite okay you perceive it as better sure the problem no, is no. Yeah. what's the likelihood of that though <laughs> yeah exactly that's that's extremely that's extremely difficult yeah. to do it's, right? it happens but that's, yeah, that's extremely difficult usually. to do now when it comes to if we want to talk about like remake for example i actually really love that game's uh battle system and actually one of the one of the things that i actually really like about that game's battle system now storytelling something else but one of the things i really like about that game's battle system is that um i feel like it kind of takes the base abstractions of final fantasy 7 um and using materia and the atb system and it creates a brand new way of presenting kind of like my favorite dish right and so even though I'm going to the restaurant and I'm ordering my favorite dish, they have brought out something in that specific instance that I found more enjoyable than the thing that I would have ordered. And so I'm completely okay with it. I'm actually delighted by it. I'm, I, it, it becomes the subversion, right? And the subversion works when, yeah, it's even greater than the thing that you were, you were imagining or hoping for. And so I think that in particular is when it's it's awesome so i don't i think it's okay to bring out something uh, you know a better dish um but you got to make sure that it's a better dish and making a better dish is really hard but it's a lot easier when you're kind of using that dish the previous dish, as a foundation for how you're making that better dish and that's something that like say final fantasy 7 remakes battle system does for me uh in comparison to the original Something really good, though, will yeah. redefine something for the mm. zeitgeist. Definition is just common usage. And how right. you get to the top of the heap with common usage is mm. through success. And, mm. like, I'm no way is like, as somebody, like, I know that the ontologist and the epistemologist in the room are going, like, crazy right now. So I do want to give him a <laughs> chance to, like explain why things are defined the way that they are but ultimately it is up to the creators from a brand perspective like 
hey, we get to decide what this is. Are we the only ones that do it? Well, whether that's a good move or not will be ultimately defined by how successful it is. And I'm telling you, if the DMC combat in Final Fantasy 16 would have been as good as DMC and the RPG, like there are more RPG elements in, in God of War Ragnarok than there are in 16. That's true. And if that would have, if that would have happened, if we would have had those elements and everybody would have resonated with them, if the game would have been difficult, you know, like if it really would have been more than the sum of its parts, I don't think mm. we would say, oh, Final Fantasy has an identity problem. We would say, this is the new identity of Final Fantasy. This is a another notch on this ever-evolving brand, you know, that gets to be new and interesting right. things. A better idea for what, how you, like, I mean, look at any big, th any big, big franchise. What they're trying to do is make this a big franchise, and big franchises are built on their success. Star Trek, Star Wars, those things all have these this really wide breadth of genres and the things that define them the most are going to be the things that ultimately resonate with the most amount of people. That's, that's my opinion. Wade, what you got to give me some. Yeah. I was going to pass it on to him because I, I've, I've been wanting to hear what he has to say on this. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm listening. I'm, I'm trying to absorb. Um, the, it's difficult when what you determined were core elements of something ended up being interchangeable properties. And I think that that is what many fans are realizing, that there was a misalignment between the things that they absolutely loved about the franchise and the things that the developers found to be critically core and elemental to the franchise. Um, I, I'm old enough to remember um, that when Final Fantasy VII was revealed, mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of hate um, of like, this like, is not steam, medieval. Steampunk, right? This is steampunk. What is this? Yeah. And then it was released and people were like, to Clark's point, this is good. Mm. We love this. And then Final Fantasy VIII came out and people were like, where's Cloud, right? <laughs> why, why do we have a draw system, you know? Yeah, and nobody's and, dying. Exactly. And yeah. so then Final Fantasy IX came out and it's a return to medieval and, and the people that really love seven and even those that really liked eight feel a little bit betrayed, even though it is arguably, uh, according to Sakaguchi and others, maybe mm. the best Final Fantasy that's out there. Or at least the most in line, yeah. Or at least the most mm. in line. Um, I would agree it, with that. It's also important, I think, to understand that each one of these is a different iteration of the evolution of the series. So chocobos come into play in Final Fantasy II, but Final Fantasy I doesn't have chocobos, right? And so you can't necessarily say that all Final Fantasies have chocobos, but today that's a mainstay. In the same way, you know, I, I think in terms of like, we get these epic battle scenes in the early Final Fantasies and in Final Fantasy VII and all this kind of stuff. And as a child, as a kid, I imagined what would it have been like, you know, not to, as my brother says, to fight through lists and menus, right? To actually take the sword, right? Because well, uh, yeah. my brother, he's a big Call of Duty fan, a reviled by was, my yeah, followers yeah. On, on Twitter, right? And he looked at 16 and said, this looks like Call of Duty. Now, he was so wrong about that, right? Like, there's so many other genres and franchises that he could have said. But he was like, this looks like something that I would play his whole framework 
was not about the stories, but it was about me going through lists to select Fire 3 or, or whatever. And so I, I think that Square Enix was like, um, in, in if I were to kind of think through their evolutionary process, it's like, how do we give people the richness that this franchise offers at the core without the obstacles that technology in the past and gameplay design uh, would have done? Now, evolutionary thought and theory means that there are going to be some iterations that just don't work. But we wouldn't have Final Fantasy 16 without Final Fantasy 8 right and each one of those or created 10. something else or 10 for that matter i mean the, the advent of, of voice acting in that respect um and i think that we see what 16 is um and, and we also understand what it does well but where is it going to lead for final fantasy 17 um when it comes to naming specific pieces and i, I mentioned this in my video but to clark's point about ontology you have to have those core elements in those core properties. It is heartbreaking, like I began, for someone to recognize what I loved about this series was not core to it. Right, it was an um, interchangeable property. It was an interchangeable property. Same thing with Zelda. I think somebody said in the chat, the very first Zelda was like an open world. <laughs> Breath of the Wild is maybe truer to that format than certainly Zelda 2 was, which is largely reviled because it changed up the system. Um, but then it kind of riffs on the Ocarina of Time and, and Link to the Past sort of thing. So again, what was core about that series, the elements mm. and the interchangeable properties? So that, that's all that I would say. No, I think these that. are all great points. Yeah. And I appreciate you guys mm. sharing. Yeah, I had um, one thought I, I, in terms of all of this, and it is, yeah, does anyone have any semblance of an idea what Final Fantasy 17 might be. No, but I have said, <laughs> I have said Edo era Japan is where they need to go next. That's but what do I you want. know what Dragon? You know what Dragon Quest 12 is probably going to be, right? You got a pretty good idea of what Dragon Quest 12 is going to be. No, kind of not, kind of not actually, because they, really? they, they've been, yeah, they've been saying that Dragon oh. Quest 12 is going to be quite different. Oh, so. okay. Besides okay. what people are saying, I'm talking about from a brand management perspective. However, I'm however, not talking about what, what however, yeah, if, if, we're, if we're talking about like based on like one through eleven, yeah, you could have a, you could have yeah, a based pretty... on every single Dragon Quest ever, right? You got a pretty good idea of what 12, the next one's going to be, um, right? Whether that holds true, I know, I know, that's that's uh, different. Um, but for right. Final Fantasy 17, the fact that nobody has any clue, like setting, right. um, gameplay style, like anything, any single thing about the entire right. game, except maybe we might kill God in the end. Um, yeah. That's it. Like, uh, yeah. that that means that um, what is Final Fantasy? And that's the deeper question. Uh, you should have some idea of what 17 might hold for you if right. if uh, there was any any core to what Final Fantasy has become now. Right. I, I do want to say one thing, kind of in response to what Wade and Clark have said, which I think they both have really fantastic points and points that I don't necessarily yeah. uh, disagree with. But um, for me, it's it's kind of a matter of the approach to it, right? Because I I agree that yes, like for with example with Zelda, you do have you know some Zelda fans quite jaded that the Breath of the Wild style is going to be the new thing going forward. However, Breath of the Wild has sold 30 million units, and the mm -hmm. biggest selling traditional Zelda has sold 8 million units, and therefore the new fans are so much more louder than the old fans that if you're an old fan, 
That's too bad, buddy. Uh, it's the same case with Final Fantasy VII. A lot of people didn't like that we were going from the more traditional medieval fantasy settings to the uh, steampunk uh, setting that Final Fantasy VII is. However, Final Fantasy VII sold 14 million units, and the other games did not even come close to selling that, and the new fans replaced Zelda. So Clark, Clark's absolutely right, I believe, that um, as long as, and this goes back to the restaurant analogy too, as long as the thing that you thought the you were ordering, yeah, that it goes long, on top of the new version of the dish, right, is, and, and, makes it better. Right, and as long as, long as you present what I think that if we're going to evolve a series gameplay wise, I do think that you have to start from what are the feelings and what's achieved from that game. And that's why I think that an evolution like Resident Evil 2 and 3 to Resident Evil 4, uh, you know, Ocarina of Time to Twilight Princess to Breath of the Wild works. I mean, why Link to the Past to Ocarina of Time works? Because there's quite a bit big difference between like God of those War three to yeah. God of War reboot works. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Or why uh, and and why Final Fantasy VII Originals gameplay to Final Fantasy VII remakes works, or yeah. uh, Mario World to Mario sixty four works? Because even though those games are mechanically different, they approach the same feelings and sensations, and they give you them there. But they do it from a different angle, and that's where you can that's where you can change your gameplay, and people can still have consensus. That this is a thing uh, within the same franchise, mm. and it can even reach an, a new level of audience. However, uh, where I think my perspective really um, kind of differs, maybe a little bit from Clark and Wade, is is that it's the approach to how you make that good thing, mm. and I am a firm believer in an iteration because for example do you guys think bethesda could make a good devil may cry <laughs> maybe right but their first their first attempt at it pro- if, oh yeah yeah, yeah. their first their attempt first at attempt. it Mm-mm. would probably be pretty rough right yeah. similar to i mean even ff1 being like a you know dungeons and dragon clone and it would it would not be it would not be that great right um i mean from software's first RPG was Dark Souls and it was great. I think right. I think it's 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 a dice roll. It really is whether somebody can enter something and do something. Isn't it well, Demon right. Souls? Demon yeah. Souls, I mean. I'm sorry. Right. No, and I I, th- I think I'm I think sorry from soft friends. Right. <laughs> I, 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 just want to make sure. Right. But it wasn't Kingsfield. Was right. that an oh. RPG or was that like I never right. played Kingsfield, so I I'm just not I don't, sure. I actually my, don't know. I've and and my my, my 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 counter my counter argument would be though is that they have stuck with a lot of principles introduced in that first Souls game all the way through Elden Ring, mm. and improved on them mm, and made true. them better. That's true. And then then we then we got to Elden Ring. Then we got to Bloodborne and Sekiro, right? As soon so, as we take those things out, it's right. we're going to be a no man. Right. Yeah. And so are they gonna are they gonna put out Demon Souls? And then are they going to put out like something else that's on par with Demon's Soul that revolutionizes something? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, yes, you can come out of the gate and be really good at something. It's harder, it's, though. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's really hard. Harder. And can yeah. you come out of the gate with something? Well, they call it lightning in a bottle for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Right. Can, you, can you come out yeah. of the gate with something as good as Demon's Souls that's brand new and has absolutely nothing to do with Demon's Souls 
every single time you approach creating a game. I cannot name a single studio that does that. I cannot name a, a human being that really Annapurna. does that with their with their Annapurna. art. Okay, kind of kind of Annapurna. Okay, you kind of you kind of cook in there. Annapurna does do that, but <laughs> so but uh, that, yeah, that lot twenty four video games. Yeah, Final Fantasy seventeen is going yeah. to be a banger action game if what you're saying is true. Right. Um, well. If it builds off of 16 and 7R, right? It will be. And, and that is kind right. of to your point. I don't know if you said this at the beginning of the stream or before, yeah. but um, I, I do think that I agree with you in saying that they need to pick a lane to some degree and to iterate within that lane. lane. And so say for uh, 7 Rebirth, um, I think that the combat in that is going to be spectacular because it iterates mm. on something that was already good. Remake had good um, uh, combat, and I think it's going to be um, near universally praised because they've been able to master it and iterate on top of that. Yeah, uh, moving forward. Yeah, um, if they, yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. If they change that, I'd be like, okay, it's over. Over here. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we can't delay Wade any longer from getting to his own stream here. We're, we're way more than an hour over where we said we we're going to go. I will say this as my last piece, and then we will probably talk about this again at some future point, I hope. Mm -hmm. um, I think all the points made are really good. I'll definitely be watching this podcast again <laughs> myself and kind of returning to stuff. Yeah. Um, I, I just want to say, as much as I agree on the points, particularly with FF7 and, and, and 6, actually, 6 even more as well, mm -hmm. before, uh, did some of the things you guys are talking about in taking a direction. And, and I, I like the way you put it, Wade, where you thought a core element ended up being, ended up not being a core element or something. An like interchangeable, that. yeah. And it, it was an interchangeable uh, thing. What and, you and thought was a core yeah, 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 that can kind of cause some, I don't know, dissonance. cognitive dissonance with people. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, I, 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 I do sympathize because somebody came in and said, well, what about Resident Evil 4 or, um, you know, some of these other games that had God of War was brought up too. Uh, I, while I liked Resident Evil 4 way better than the original 1, 2, and 3 games, uh -huh. um, yeah. I sympathize with those people who miss the less action and, and the real hardcore focus on the, uh, you know, on the item preservation. You can only save a certain amount of times in the yeah. game. And like, there's a whole strategy to all of that that is lost. That's true. And, and some people aren't going to like the new dish, even if it is great, like the old one. Yeah. And uh, I, I sympathize for those people. And so um, I guess my point in the end is, I've been on both sides of this argument in different mm. situations. Yeah. And uh, I, I really, I really can kind of like, <laughs> I can relate to both. Yeah. And so uh, there is really no answer to this question. And I know that there isn't, but it is an interesting thing nevertheless to talk about because yeah. it just shows how many different ways people can see a thing. Um, yeah. And ultimately like, what it means to you is more important than what it means to other people and just go mm. with what, go with what you, uh, what resonates with you. And if it's not resonate with you anymore, that's fine. 
L3 yeah, plus let it go. R3 to accept the truth. Let it go. You know, accept the find, truth. Find a new restaurant. <laughs> find a new restaurant. It's not that hard. Uh, <laughs> all right. Anything else you guys want to say before we peace out? Uh, this is fun. This right. was yeah, a, this was a extreme great. honor to finally talk to you in this yeah. in this capacity. Yeah, and we'll do it again. I love this. We'll yeah, do it again. Have me on anytime. Yeah, for sure. One of these days, I'm going to be building a, a new podcast studio, and um, it'll actually be in my new place I'm moving into. And the plan is to get some people in person with us. We have some plans yeah. for this. So, um, we'll love that. Uh, oh, we'll oh, we'll yeah. elaborate more on that here in the coming months, but I'd love to actually meet some of you guys in person one of these days uh, yeah. instead of just doing this Discord. I got to meet these two in person. We, we, yeah, exactly. We've all met each other, yeah. 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 Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Thanks, thanks to Final <laughs> Fantasy 16, actually. <laughs> yeah, because we were at the yeah. launch party. Uh, launch great. party, yeah. 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 Oh, who, who all, were all three of you guys there? At yeah, that I, I threw a That's weird nice. party, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, you you did the after party thing, right, Clark? You hosted. It was like, like a, a whole... pre-party, yeah, yeah. Oh, a pre-party. Okay. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, well, guys, thanks for coming on. Uh, yeah. Wade, I'll, I might jump over and watch your stream here for a bit. Everybody yeah, else should on, do baby. it if you've got time. <laughs> it's going to be late, but uh, it, check it out. It's the kickoff. We're doing the prologue, which <laughs> arguably right. is the best part of the game. So <laughs> there you <laughs> go. All right, guys. Talk to you later. All thanks. Right. See ya. Peace out. See you guys.